Oh, man, what a day. Yeah, crazy. We are recording on Wednesday, uh, the 16th. show will probably be out tomorrow. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> what's even happened so far today? So far today, watchOS 2.0 has been postponed indefinitely. My yes. guess is for a few days uh, due to some sort of last-minute bug that has popped up in which Apple is not describing. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a user-facing bug, though. It sounds more like a developer-facing bug. Do you think so? Yeah, and, and if you're on the GM or if you're on the beta, you don't have any reason to be uh, concerned about anything. But if you remember last year, I think there were problems with extension signing and then with the HealthKit apps, and it took them a week or so to figure those out. I was, I was wondering if maybe it was some kind of bug that affects the upgrade process. Maybe. I mean, the, the beta upgrade worked fine. Um, yeah. And it just it seemed more like a, a not front-facing issue than a front-facing issue. Yeah. Um, I don't know, though. Uh, it's hard to say. But, yeah. you know, I, I think anybody who wants to complain and, you know, it, bugs happen. I mean, it's a hell of a lot better for Apple to find a bug before it ships. And obviously, it's a little embarrassing for them to have pre-announced the date and then have to yank it. But compare and contrast with the... Um, what was it? Nine nine point oh point one last year. Yeah, eight point oh point one. Oh, eight point oh point one. Nine nine is this year. No, yep. I, I'm. God damn it. I'm, no, it's, uh, might as well be a Monday. Remember the eight point oh point one last year came out and it didn't break everybody's phone, but for some subset of users who were downloading it over the air, it uh, temporarily bricked. Their... It killed Touch ID and it killed LTE. So if you were Jesse Char, you noticed no problems whatsoever. But if you're anyone else, <laughs> you had issues. Wait, she doesn't get LTE? I don't think she uses her phone as a phone. I, I think it was oh. just the phone call part. Um, oh, oh, I got you. All right, but her fingers do not yeah. do not register. Um, what else has happened today? So iOS 9 is rolling out as we speak. Yes. Um, and one interesting thing you mentioned before the show started, it does have a different build number than the GM that Apple distributed. Uh, was that last week? Yeah, the GM is 40 and the... The release version is forty four. So obviously, a, something something minor, at least in there, changed. So far, yeah, so good on that, from what I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do have the GM, uh, you'll get a software update. It's very small; it's a few mega, uh, I think, a hundred megabytes or something. Yeah. Um, content blockers are rolling out, which yeah. I think is going to be a major. Um, it's inter It's just interesting to see how this is going to be because this is the sort of thing that is going to change uh, a lot for people like me and you. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And it's also the only sort of app that you can really look for this year. I mean, last year there was all sorts. There were share extensions and action extensions yeah. and widgets. And the only really big new kind of app you can get this year is content blockers. So they're right. going to get featured more than anything else. Right. In terms of, and it's funny too, and, and you know, I'll get to it because you've written a massive, massive review, <laughs> but it does, it, it's one of those things though that makes it hard to uh, judge these OS releases by based on, even if you just assume that the GM is good, yep. you know, is real, it's hard to judge the OS as a whole until after it ships and you have some time to use it with the real world stuff that that ships. In other yep. words, I, nobody's going to really form a, a serious opinion of iOS 9 until after the content blockers have come out and people have picked the ones they want, if any, and see how that affects their, their usage. And you, there was ways to beta test them beforehand, but I, um, you know, it's like you may, maybe you didn't 
get to beta test all of them. Yeah. And you and I discussed this about the watch too, like just testing complications and how much that would actually change your workflow. It's going to be very different. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And I don't have any beta apps. I don't even know if that was possible with the watch. So I have been playing with watchOS 2.0 for a few weeks now, but I haven't written anything about it because yeah. I don't I don't see how I can judge it until after the complications come out. And really, frankly, even just uh, native apps in general on the watch and see if it solves some of the, um, you know, just so slow to launch problems that we've seen with the watch kit 1.0 watch. Yeah, whether it's like slow apps or whether the watch isn't the same kind of app platform that maybe the phone or the tablet were. Yeah, it's just impossible for me at least to 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 make a, a judgment of it until I, you know after yeah. this shakes out and we live with it for a while. I mean, me calling what I write reviews is kind of half a lie because most of them are just trying to explain how things work and how you can juggle the different options. Yeah, I thought of that too because I linked to your review at iMore, your iOS 9 review, and it's just what it's, it just says iOS 9 review. And at this point, you're nine versions into writing these things you might as well not change it now um but review is it sells it short in some ways and it's misleading in others because it's not really review sort of is like is this good is this bad um and there's obviously some of that but it's really more just like i don't know like uh, everything you would want to know about ios 9 yeah i'm just fascinated about the technology yeah well, but you do more than just the technology, though. You 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 absolutely write about it from the perspective of the experience. Like, it's sure. one thing to just say, here, now you can do this and that. Um, but yours is more, look, I've been banging on this thing for months, um, living with it. And here's, you know, here's what it's like. Like, here's here's not just a, a list of what's new in the Notes app, for example. Here's, you know, what this enables you to do with it. You know, it turns it into a, a totally different app now. Yeah, absolutely. Just to name one example. So when did you uh, start using iOS 9 full-time? Uh, well, you made fun of me the day of the event because I showed you I put it on my phone already. So uh, <laughs> right that, was, that was WWDC. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I put it on my carry, and immediately, uh, you know, I, I had no data signal, and it took me a while to get that working. Well, I think this year was actually a pretty good one for that. I mean, and if anybody, it's funny if anybody would have reason to um, to install it right on day one and start living with it, it would be someone like you or Federico, yeah. uh, somebody who's planning on writing one of these comprehensive, and I mean it sincerely. I mean book length uh, reviews of it, and, and you know. The rough timeline. And again, you know, this year we can, you know, talk about the fact that Apple's not having an October event. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, the October event was always the one, if there's only going to be one event, that's the one that was going to be dropped because September is just sort of set in stone for the phones. I mean, and again, you never know, something unforeseen could happen that would delay it. But, you know, we had a, it was a pretty good bet that iOS 9 was going to ship uh, sometime in the first two weeks of September. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- this event going all the way back to the iPod days is the holiday event for Apple, where they set up everything that they expect everyone's going to buy for the holidays. Yeah, yeah. Even back to when they called it the music events. Yeah. You know, and it would just be, you know, before the iPhone, it was this is when new iPods came out. And, you know, sometimes there'd be like a, <laughs> it would be weird. Sometimes there'd be like a iWork or something like that. Yeah, and they occasionally, like, I think they had the first Unibody Mac event in October, but those were always, they, they weren't regular for a while. Right. They would just be when they had something to talk about. 
So anyway, somebody like you who wants to write down, how many words was your review? How many uh, words? Like 22,000. So there you go. I mean, that's, you know, again, that's, that might be short for a book, but if you printed it out, it's, it's a lot more book length than it is article length. Yeah, I did take stuff out. Like I took out stuff that I thought was only developer appropriate or was getting too far into the nitty gritty. So I did cut a lot as well. I just right. wanted to keep it small book length. I mean, like a typical, I mean, it's hard to say what's typical these days with the way stuff gets cut, but something like a 4,000 word article, if you're doing like a freelance writer, that's like a feature article in a magazine for length. Sure. And I think, you know, books obviously range in thickness greatly, but I think once you're in the measuring in the tens of thousands, it's book length or booklet length rather than article length. And iOS 8 is, sorry, iOS 9 is deceptive. Serenity did our Coles Notes version. Like, this is the important stuff you need to know. And I think that hit four or 6,000 words just doing the, the rough take. <laughs> That's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I, I think in in broad terms, I, you know, I think everybody, you know, keeps trying to set the stage that, everybody who's writing about it is trying to set the stage. Just the, the basic expectation, like for somebody who hasn't really been paying attention all summer, which is actually, you know, not a bad way to go if you're a layperson. Sure. Take a look, take a listen at WWDC. Think about what interests you. Tune out for the summer and wait to see what actually ships because sometimes stuff drops and stuff like that. Um, but everybody trying to give people the lay of the land, the basic gist is, okay, this is not like a radical upgrade like iOS 7. This is a year-over-year thing, which is fair enough. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But I, I don't think we're ever going to see an iOS 7-like up, update again for iOS. I think iOS 7 was where they reset to a foundation to build on for years, I mean, decades to come, I think. Yeah, I know. I agree. I mean, if you look back in hindsight, maybe some of it was serendipitous, maybe some of it was planned, but you couldn't get to iOS 9 without iOS 7 and iOS 8. Like you needed, you needed the kind of an interface that could go through the size class changes that could go from being a regular to, um, to one of the smaller size classes. And you needed like so much of iOS 9 is built on extensibility. And I remember we talked a couple, last year about how, how transformative extensibility could be that it was literally uncoupling features from apps it was it was setting them free from the binary and they're doing everything from content blockers to safari view controller to the gameplay recording is all, to a lot of the privacy stuff is all being done through extensibility and all the search stuff is being done through continuity because they're indexing our activity so they can take us back to it they can use it as a reminder it, it's all coming together really well in ios 9. yeah i think so and but a lot of that really comes back to resetting um just just resetting the table for iOS 7 and saying this, let's get back to somewhere where we can build on and they knew where they needed to go. And some of that is just purely engineering and it, it didn't require necessarily a visual refresh, you know, like size classes and extensibility. Obviously they could have done extensibility with the old look. I mean, it's nothing, sure. but I think it was worth it for them. And I think this is the way they thought about it. It was worth it to do all this resetting at once and then build from there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just can't even imagine uh, green felt or wood paneling changing from compact to regular size class on an iPad with split view. Yeah. I mean, and now look at Mac OS X. I think Mac OS X is a good comparison. And it has had, there have been a few times over the years where there's been a more significant visual refresh than others. Last year, it would be, for example, with uh, Yosemite going to a, a more... It's again not really iOS seven look alike, but more like looks like looks like a sibling to to iOS seven. Um, 
and a few years before that, there was the one where they got rid of all the metal and and yeah. and and having two different window types. You know, the aqua windows and the brushed metal windows. Um, but those weren't radical, right? I I don't I think he, Yosemite maybe was arguably, but none of the previous ones really were were radical in terms of having the sort of controversy that iOS seven mm-hmm. really. Uh, you know, almost the upheaval and the, wow, this looks altogether different sort of reaction. And I think iOS 7, I think that this look, I think it will evolve over time. Everything gets stale and fashions change. And obviously even just the system font this year changed. So it'll evolve and there might be some year coming where there's a more significant change than, than in recent times. But I really think that part of the plan with the iOS 7 look and going to a much more simpler and unadorned overall look was to get get to something that's a little bit less about trendiness and and a little bit more towards a design that's timeless specifically so that they don't have to do things like that again and that they can just keep iterating like they have this year i agree completely like i look at it almost in architectural terms and it's just got great bones now and they can build out some differences like they can put in san francisco and it refreshes everything or if they decide not to wait for quantum dot panels and they go with oled panels and they need a night theme because that's better on oled they can add all that in but the structure the physics the the playfulness of ios that they've built now i think that's a really long lasting platform yeah and i think it was definitely the intention and i think part of it is just the simple fact that even with their vast resources now, the a lot of the teams at Apple are still relatively small. Johnny Ives' group is relatively small, and it's always going to be relatively small. Um, and not having to worry about spending specific uh, a lot of time every year updating the look of iOS and Mac OS X um, and Watch OS just to keep them looking fresh, trying to stick to something that's a little bit more timeless. Uh, even if it even if it decreases the sort of trendiness, like, wow, that looks good again this year. This is new, you know. Like, you do lose something marketing wise if there's not like, wow, that looks new every year. But it saves them the time of having to just keep reinventing the stuff they're already they've already done, and lets them spend times on expanding. Like last year, they could expand and spend a lot of time on the watch. This year, they could spend a lot of time on Apple TV. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the the interesting thing is that, that that was a painful moment. That took a huge amount of willpower and a huge amount of effort. And they turned that around in less than even a year. And then they did another massive uh, change with iOS 8 and built out all the, the, the new frameworks. But now that's done and they can do things um, that are super interesting. And I, I think you need those moments. You need those moments of this is what we thought the platform was going to be. And six years, seven years later, this is what we understand it is now. And if we want to go 10 years forward, uh, we need to build that out now because it's only going to get harder as we move on. And they can do a gold phone or a rose gold phone, and that will appeal mm-hmm. to people who just want a new color. But the software inside it, you know, yes, you know, maybe the maybe the, the uh, wallpaper will match the rose gold or the gold or the new sport bands, whatever. But the software itself will scale through all of that. Yeah. I mean, I know that this is in a lot of ways a problematic analogy, but if you just compare it to a pane of coat on a building, um, I think for the first few years of iOS, Apple was sort of not necessarily picking, it wasn't like radically changing every year, but they were going back and having to repaint a lot of the building every year. And I think with the iOS 7 look is, is like a longer lasting coat of paint. And then they can just go back and update some of the trim. 
you know, and so, okay, now it's not Helvetica Noia, it's uh, San Francisco as the system font, but the whole thing didn't have to get repainted. It feels almost like they switched from doing iOS as a bitmap and made it a vector. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. I think that's a very good way of putting it. And I think that fitting it in with the size classes is part of that, too. Yeah, I think absolutely. that that pixel perfect stuff. Um, I was, you know, and I, I really do hope over the years. I, I, I'm a fan of this design. I think it was the right thing. Uh, I know there's still people who still complain about it. Um, but I, that doesn't mean that I've suddenly dropped it and think that the, the old iOS look was bad. I mean, I, I, there's certain aspects of it that I miss, but... Uh, it just, I don't think it gave them the flexibility that they need. Yeah, and we can subjectively like or dislike individual elements of the latest iOS or iOS 6 or 5, but objectively, there were huge gains that were made by going this direction. Yeah. Um, let's take a brief break, and then when we come back, let's talk about the event last week. Uh, maybe not spend too much time on it, but then we'll go on to iOS 9. But let me take a break and thank... Uh, our first sponsor this week, and it is our good friends at Hover. You guys know Hover. They're the best place to buy and manage domain names. Uh, when you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain for it. You want something catchy and memorable uh, to represent your project. Uh, you want a domain name that looks good. Like a lot of times, you think you have it. You know the word you want, and you find another top, you know, the top level domain to put at, to put next to it. But then when you look at it, sometimes certain letters don't look right next to each other. Or if you make it all lowercase, certain words combine together and just don't look right together because it looks like it might spell a different word or something like that. It's hard to get a good domain. You have to play around with it. Hover makes that easy. They've got great tools to find new domains. Uh, when you find one that you want and it's taken, maybe if it's the .com, it's a very good chance it's taken. They help you find another top-level domain with the same root word. Um, all of that in less than five minutes, even if you haven't ever even opened your Hover account yet, with five minutes, you can find a domain, register it, get it up and running, and all you have to do is search for a few keywords to get it going. Um, and they'll show you all of the results against all the extensions out there. If you've ever registered a domain anywhere else, you know that a lot of the companies in the domain registration business make it purposefully unpleasant. It's a it's a real scammy business. There's there's it's it's a race to the bottom pricing wise for the most part, and therefore to make up for it, they do a lot of uh, just like upsell stuff to 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 get the extra money out of you. Uh, Hover goes the other way. They do have great prices. They're not the lowest, but they shouldn't be the lowest because they what they do, they're, they're competitive, and I think it's well worth the value. But what they do is they just include all the stuff that you don't have to upgrade for. A great example is who is privacy um, so that when people look up your domain name, uh, can they see your home address and phone number? Well, everybody knows you don't want that up there and who is stuff. Um, but other other registrars make you pay for it. Well, that's ridiculous. Obviously, that should be included in your account. Hover makes that so. And last but not least, in fact, last but most important, Hover has the most amazing thing in the entire business. They call it free valet transfer service. So if you've already got domain names at another registrar and you want to move them to Hover, which you should, what you can do instead of doing all that busy work yourself is just sign up for a Hover account. Go to the valet transfer. Give them your uh, the information to log into your registrar at the other places, and their experts at Hover will will handle everything to move them over. 
Uh, you don't have to pay for it. That's just included with your Hover account. That's just that's that's how sure they are that once you switch those domains to Hover, that you're never going to switch them away. You'll just be a longtime customer, and they just know they'll make the money from you on the renewals as the years go by. They're that that confident in it. Um, I have a lot of friends with a lot of domains, and a lot of them use Hover, and I've never heard of one person who's ever switched from Hover to another domain. It's that good. So here's the deal. Go to Hover.com. They have a code. You'll get 10% off your first purchase by using this code. It's just for this episode of this show, and they always pick these clever codes. Here it is. Crappy old phone. <laughs> and you'll save 10% off your first uh, purchase at checkout. So my thanks to them. Hover.com and use the code crappy old phone. And anybody listening to this show this week, you've got a, <laughs> you've got a crappy old phone in your hand. <laughs> All right. Um, so last week's event, you were there. Yes. We we sat near each other. Um, I was wrong in advance. I thought, hey, you know, uh, I think they'll do the same thing they usually do, have the two events one after another because it would be busy uh, and because, you know, they're, otherwise they're not going to be able to talk about the Mac at all. So I was wrong. Uh, they only have, they're only having one event this year. I'm almost certain and talking to friends behind the scenes, that certainly is the plan. If there is yes. another public event this year, it would be something that they're addressing some kind of surprise. Um, but I was right. It made for a very busy event, and it left no time at all for the Mac. Yeah, no time for the Mac. OS X was, uh, it was a, a Easter egg in Craig's email box. I caught that. It's funny because I take notes, and there, it's funny when I rewatch the event, I, I never once catch everything. They're too dense, especially when they go fast like this. So I always there's always some things I caught. I did happen to catch that. So what was it? Craig was up there. Um, yeah, and he was just demoing um, the email preview abilities, the uh, hint, peek, and pop for uh, 3D Touch. And he did the preview on Phil Schiller's email, and it had secret release date for OS 10 El Capitan, September 30th. Don't let anybody find out. Yeah, and then I think it said at the bottom, uh, note, Apple Confidential. Yeah. Uh, that was about it for the Mac, though. Um, in hindsight, I guess it makes sense. And especially if they don't have new Mac hardware ready to go later this year. Although I think if they do, and it's just Retina 21 Chi Mac yeah. and minor refreshes to, to MacBook Pros or something, they can just do those with a press release. Yeah, the MacBook shipped in March. Well, it was announced in March, and Intel took so long to get Broadwell out, and now they're just beginning to roll out Skylake that it's hard it, It's hard to see that they have the chips to make the sort of MacBooks that they would want to show off on a stage. Yeah. And, you know, otherwise there's not much left for an event. Uh, I forget what other, a few other readers have, you know, sent in as I'd speculation. I, I, more or less New routers? Re- yeah, who knows? <laughs> I forget what somebody else uh, it, it's just not possible. There's no way that they can make an event that's worth it. Would it have been worth it to have a a separate event? Now, if they had held the iPads, including the iPad Pro, I think they could have done it. Because and then what they could have done, I guess. Although in high, you know, maybe not. See, I was thinking because the there's a new iPad Mini Four, yes, which is now technically equivalent to the iPad Air Two. Um, the yeah, slight processor difference, but that's about it. Uh, that's interesting, and that's a new machine. Actually, does kind of make for a hard demo, though. If once you've shown off all the features in the new OS on the iPad Pro, 
So maybe it doesn't make for a good event. Maybe part of it, you know, part of it, obviously, I think talking to people behind the scenes was that Apple really wanted to only have one event because doing one event and putting all of the wood behind that arrow is easier than doing two events, even if one of them is sort of a smaller one right there on Apple's campus. But second, maybe that wouldn't have been enough to make, you know, maybe that would have left people, you know, people who go and travel to get there thinking this wasn't worth it. And the people who watch from home, they're, they're watching and they see 4K iMac, it's not as impressive as a 5K iMac, the iPad Mini 3, it's not as impressive as the iPad, sorry, iPad Mini 4, not as impressive as the iPad Air 2. And then you have the iPad Pro, which is great, but Apple is usually really good when they have a two, like a double barrel event. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just like last year's Retina iMac, except smaller. And it's just like last year's iPad Air 2, but smaller. Yeah. Isn't really that's great if what you want is smaller, but it's it doesn't really make for a demo. I will miss Craig getting up on stage and saying OS ten is available today. But other than that. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing really they would have left to demo is to rehash. And I think that would be good, but it just I may not make for a great event is to just go through here's the top ten best features, the ten pole features in Yosemite. Or they didn't even do that okay. for iOS this year. I mean iOS didn't get any time. Yeah, they kind of, yeah, again, because they went long enough as is, they kind of skipped that rehash of, you know, what they call the tent poles. And usually it's yeah. 10 of them, you know, but here's the top 10 things that we want you to know about. And people forget, I, I know people sometimes complain about it because they're like, they showed all this at WWDC. Um, yeah. I think, you know, people who are really, really cued into this. I mean, sometimes I get that feeling, too, when I'm watching it. But I totally understand why Apple does it, because that's how you that's how you teach people things. You have to repeat it. It's it's both a pedagogical axiom and a marketing axiom. You have to make your point multiple times to get it through to more people, you know, than you would. Absolutely. And it's not like Apple talks to us very often, you know, us being the greater um community they, they just don't have a lot of airtime so when they have that airtime they want to do that exactly here's what we're going to tell you we're telling it to you did you see what we told you yeah <laughs> um the event itself it was if if i had known if i had somehow gotten advanced access inside the facility and seen what they had built i would have been a lot less likely to guess that they were going to do two events this year yeah, like it's hard for me to, uh, you know, in my write up afterwards, I don't think I'd, I I had so much to cover, but it's it's really hard for me to express just how impressive the build out inside that the, the Bill Graham Civic Center was. Yeah, I mean, if you'd never seen the Civic Center without it, you would, like I had never seen it before. I, I didn't know what it looked like, so I went and looked at some other pictures afterwards. And, and if you'd only ever seen it without what Apple did to it, you may not appreciate it, but they transformed that structure. It's almost like a movie set when you come into an empty warehouse and all of a sudden it's it's uh, The Force Awakens inside it. Yeah, it's that's a good way to put it, that it's it was like a movie set. They, they built a movie set for an Apple keynote room. Like I was saying that they built a building within the building and then yeah. maybe that's not right because it was all, it, it didn't have an outside structure for you to see. It, it was all inside. So a movie set is maybe a better way to put it because it was all meant to be seen from the inside, like a movie set and the outside, yeah. who knows what it looked like, you know, it was impossible to sort of see that. That. And from one direction, I mean, it's it, people yeah. kept saying 7,000 seats, but they had maybe 1,500, 1,700 uh, available in there. Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. Because it's you know that they, they took up a bunch of that what would be the floor space for like a, if you wanted to hold a concert or something with max you know and sell the most tickets, 
it, you would just set it up an entirely different way. I mean, it really was yep. more like a movie set, 360 degrees all the way around. Even the flooring, you know, the the stadium seating that we sat on was all built by Apple and and temporary. Yeah, it's not like they have a big warehouse in Cupertino that they cart the stuff in and then put it away again for next year's event. They built this stuff. They build it like bespoke every time. Yeah, they even put in um, an air system. So the, the building is not air conditioned. And I was talking to somebody at Apple, and when they were talking, you know, in preliminary talks to maybe use this building, they were like, well, what's the air conditioning situation? And uh, the Bill Graham people were like, oh, it's easy. It's great. You just open the windows. <laughs> yeah. No, their events team is spectacular. They, they really could run production for any major studio. It's, uh, I, here, I was thinking about this. What do you think that costs them? Oh, man. I mean, just the air conditioning alone. And we were actually joking at the event that we'd rather the Wi-Fi went out than the air conditioning because it was so hot. Yeah. But it must have been in the millions. I, I, I oh, can't even I, believe how high. I, 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 Tens of I, millions. Know, I'm not in that field, so I could be way off. I, I, I'm guessing 10 to $15 million. Yeah, doesn't sound crazy to me. Well, and think about it. Like, what's a Super Bowl ad cost? Yeah. Like $5 million and plus the production cost to make the commercial. So... You know, it's not unheard of for a company to spend 10 to $20 million on a TV campaign or commercial. And Apple certainly gets super, you know, I, well, they get more than Super Bowl commercial exposure out of these special events. Um, and unlike a commercial, it has to be done live. They have to get it right the first time. Right. But they don't have to share the day with anybody else. So instead of yeah. racing to, you know, have being one of 40 different, all trying to be the, you know, the commercial everybody's talking about tomorrow. Apple knows that everybody's going to be talking about them tomorrow. But I think spending $10, $20 million on it is is not outlandish. And I think it looked like something they might have spent $10, $20 million on. You know, whatever, however long they'd rented the place out, however many people it took to build it, however much it costs to uh, to put all that stuff up. I mean, the seats, I, I again, I, I wrote this that I think that they just, I don't know if they threw them out. I don't know if there was someone they could donate them to. But the seating was that we sat in was all brand new. I mean, yeah. if, and I don't know that there's a way to rent that. Like, it wasn't, they weren't chairs that you can, like, pick up and, and move. They were, like, rows of seating that were connected to each other. You know, there's certain types of folding chairs that, that you can latch next to each other for for ad hoc events that you can take them down and stuff like that. Yeah, it didn't look like condo association seating had used that last week. Right. And they all looked, the ones I was in look, you know, around our section, they all look brand new. But on the other hand, and and some people, you know, when I wrote that, they were like, well, maybe they're going to use those on the campus in their theater. And that's a good idea, but they weren't that sturdy. They, they were, they, you know, there was a lot of rock to them. I mean, they were nice and they were cushioned, um, but they, I, I, I'd be shocked if those exact seats were the ones Apple has in their new theater on campus because they weren't that nice. They didn't they, look Johnny Ive team designed. No, they definitely did not. And they also did not feel built to last. Yeah. They, you know, but they were, you know, it, it just was just an unbelievable build. And the crazy thing is it wasn't just that. Like if you ever go to CES and talk to them about how much those booths cost, they built the equivalent. Like they had pods for the Apple TV demos, little living rooms. And I don't know how many. It looked oh. like 10 or 20. And those are all it's like that's a CES style uh, pavilion as well as the event they're already running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the screen was enormous. The stage and screen were enormous. And that's the sort of thing that's really, I think it's impossible to gauge if you're not there. Like yeah. the, you know, and again, does it really matter that we were there message wise? No, but 
in terms of understanding the scale of the, the, the show, it does. Because when you're on TV, you know, watching the video, it it reduces that scale. You're really just watching the slides go by um, and you don't really see the size of it. It was enormous. It was so big that I noticed several times that when they were switching to videos and they're like, you know, like when one of the Johnny Imes narrated videos that, that, that whoever was speaking, um, Phil or, or Tim or whoever would say, you know, now we have, you know, I want to tell you about it. They'd start playing it while they were still standing in front of it because it was so big that it would create an awkward pause if they waited until they walked until they weren't in front of it anymore. Yeah, it, it was it was almost like an IMAX version of a of a tech uh, demo. Yeah, like ordinarily you would never, never, and I and I think it had to come through rehearsals. I think even like your instincts, even as a, you know, a, not that polished of a public speaker, you you would it would occur to you, I'm going to hit the button to play this yeah. after I'm off to the side. But it was so big that they had to do it while they were sort of standing in front of it. And because it was so big, it did, they never. At least I didn't even notice anybody once the video played. They were so small in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I even thought that too, while I was watching it, that it didn't make that big a difference because you really just sort of saw, you know, a little tiny bit of their silhouette um, instead of the screen. It was a yeah. re- truly enormous screen. Um, good sound, really good sound. And again, that's a big build out because they weren't, it wasn't like there was a sound system in there that they used. They, they put one in. <laughs> They put like a couple of those new iPad uh, Pro speakers just in each corner. Yeah. <laughs> Turned them to max. Um, and then the other thing, in addition to those those cubicles they built, it was like it was like a off to stage left was where they had all of these little living rooms mm-hmm. to test Apple TV and uh, iPad Pro demos that were hosted by like talented artists. Yes that you know who already had exposure to the thing and were could show you what somebody who knows what the hell they're doing when they're drawing can do um and they were really nice but it was real dark over there and then stage right you went down a hallway and it was like you were entering a temporary apple store and the most amazing thing is as you came down that hallway it looked like it was flooded with sunlight did you notice that yeah, I, I didn't actually. I didn't pick up that it was sunlight, but there was almost like a golden glow coming in as you walked through the room. I I lo- was waiting to get in, and I look, and it was flooded with sunlight. And I thought the one time, remember at one time Apple cut a hole in the wall at the Urban yeah. Buena Sweater Center to get sunlight in there, and I thought, oh, they must have cut a hole in the roof. And then I thought, no, wait, that doesn't make any sense because the Bill Graham Center has like three floors above <laughs> above yeah. the floor they were on, um, and it just they put in like some kind of you know, fancy lighting system that gives off light in the color temperature of um, of sunlight. You got to uh, wonder if that was HomeKit. There's just some guy there with Siri controlling all of it. <laughs> I don't know. But again, I think it's sort of like a movie, you know, movie studio quality lighting. Absolutely. You know, like the sort of thing that a, that a TV show or a movie would use to simulate, you know, sunlight without having to, you know, actually have sunlight in a, and again in a, that's all them they don't have an external events team like some people do like they don't hire yeah. anyone to put this together for them that's all internal yeah and it's uh, you know incredibly impressive you know yeah. i don't know i thought so well, i agree completely the other thing that was interesting and you and i talked about this is even with the seating for 1400 they did not greatly expand in fact i think they might have contracted the number of uh, media and analysts who were invited. In other words, outsiders, non-Apple people who were invited to the event. So I heard, and I don't, I didn't hear anything official about this, but I heard that the constraint wasn't the seating of the arena, but the capacity of the on-hands area. 
mm-hmm. you just couldn't have that many people in the Apple TV and the iPad uh, testing areas at one time. And that limited how many, because you can't just have a bunch of media people there and just never let them in. So they had to figure out that number, then that's as many press as they could invite, and then the rest they used for engineers. Yeah, that actually, I did not hear that, but that makes my experience, my firsthand experience, make that makes total sense to me. Um, because I stayed until they oh, so politely asked those of, those of us remaining to leave. Uh, and in the old days, that trick used to get you some really good hands-on time with stuff. I remember, like when the a re- I remember very specifically, and it's just funny because you know Apple's back to having a keyboard you can latch onto an iPad. Um, the first iPad. It was so hard to get time with them, and you know, you really just felt like there's so many people waiting at every table that after you did get some time and got to play with some things that it would occur to you, it, it was so many people you just felt like a jerk if you didn't hand it back over yep. to the Apple rep and and you know go take you know get in line again somewhere else or think about new things to do. But by the end of that hands-on session, Dan Morin and I had an iPad with the hardware, the original hardware keyboard thing, to ourselves for. Oh, I don't know, like a good like fifteen uninterrupted minutes, and uh, you know, we got to play with as many things as we could, test out keyboard shortcuts, and you know, it, it was fantastic. And there was nobody over our shoulder because most people left. That's not the case anymore. Like, it was crowded and and hard to get time with stuff up right up until they they asked us to leave. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's with just the people they did invite. So, and I heard also that they they tried to have much more international balance in the. Uh, in the media presence this time as well. And when you look through the media, it was obvious that there were people from, you know, Europe, uh, Asia, just everywhere. Yeah, a lot of people from Europe, clearly, and a lot of people from Asia, clearly. Um, uh, Yeah, and the story I heard about that was that for years what they used to do is run simulcasts around the world. I don't know how many, but let's say they'd have one in London and they'd have one somewhere in Asia, uh, maybe more than those two, maybe more, but, you know, at least, you know... one in Asia and one in London. Um, and that way people wouldn't have to fly as far. Someone from Germany would only have to travel to London. Um, and Apple has PR staff in those, you know, on those continents already. And those that PR staff could, could man those events. Um, but, but they the were just, all here this year. Yeah, well, the gist of what I heard is that more and more the people from around the world, even with the expense and time of traveling, wanted to be at the real show. They didn't want to watch on a screen at the same time. They wanted to be at the show. And as more and more people were, you know, those, the media people were asking for that, it left less and less reason for them to simulcast it. And so they didn't, anybody who wanted to be there was here, but that meant though that, you know, the 400 spots for outsiders had to be split from everybody around the world. Yeah, and conversely, they had so many products. Like they had the all new Apple Watch stuff. They had the iPad. They had the Apple TV. They had the iPhones. And those those teams aren't big. Like the press teams, the marketing teams. As far as I could tell, there were people. They were being manned by people from all over the world. Like that, if you worked at Apple in those departments anywhere in the world, you were there helping out that day. Yeah, definitely. Um, just wild. It's it just an incredible, incredible effort that goes into it. Whatever you think of the announcements, I mean, just the meta commentary on the effort apple puts into the show itself is it's truly extraordinary and it's they've taken it to to a level with this show i think that they've never done before 
Yeah, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, you mentioned before that the idea that Apple was a product, but it's almost like the events themselves have become products. And I've gotten to go to shows by other companies. Uh, and when you see the difference in how they're staged, like I won't mention any names, but some of them don't even think about streaming it. It just doesn't occur to them as they're setting it up. And then there's massive problems at the last minute. Or they do simulcast and one starts before the other. And then I remember one year, uh, I forget, London or New York started early. So they, they started handing out phones to keep reporters busy uh, while they tried to get the satellite back. And those reporters started blocking the phones immediately. Right. Like, like there's just so many things that could go wrong. And that, and that these tend to go right is a testament to the effort put in. Yeah. And it seems like, you know. The streaming held up once again very well for everybody out, you know, at home, everybody out there listening. I bet, you know, probably a majority of the people listening to this episode probably listen live. And it seemed like there were very few, if any, complaints about the streaming. Yeah, I mean, accidents and, and bad things happen to everybody. And I think it's a testament to a company that they often do not let the same bad thing happen or the same mistakes happen twice. Right. Nobody got switched to the Chinese audio track or something like that. No. Um. Anything else you want to talk about from the from the event itself? Yeah, I, it was interesting to me is when we talked to a bunch of our friends about it, uh, how split some of the opinions are. And I know there was a little bit of that at WWDC because some people actually did like the music stuff. A lot of us didn't, but some people did. And this year there was nothing as divisive as that, but there were still some people, like I know Jeff Williams owns Apple Watch at Apple. It's in his org, but he presented it and it wasn't Phil Schiller. And some people like the fresh new voice and some people would prefer to have Phil do all those things. And some people don't find Phil excited enough. So they like Craig, but some people think Craig is just a bunch of dad jokes. And like there's just so many opinions now about who should be doing what and i think that almost shows that they're getting to a level where we're not worrying about the products as much anymore and we're worrying about apple as a show yeah it's i you know i don't get the complaints about schiller and i know that there's some people who you know like twitter and email are like what's wrong with schiller was he depressed you know uh, I, I like his demeanor on stage and i think i think it's very carefully dialed in and it is um it is very much it's I don't find it to be lacking in enthusiasm. I find it to be completely without artificial enthusiasm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, even Federighi, who's who is more enthusiastic. I don't find it to be phony, though. I really do think, though, that that's exactly what he thinks. He's just more of a jovial guy than than Schiller is. They're all, as far as I can tell, um, and you spend a lot more time with them than I have, but they, they come off off stage the same way they come off on stage. Yes, very much so in my experience. Very much so. Um, even Eddie, too. Um, it's, you know, he is. He's, you know, you think, well, that guy might be a little goofy. He is a little goofy. <laughs> it's funny. Like, he runs iTunes. He has to be. You, you wouldn't, you know, and, and the idea, like when you hear that Steve Jobs and Tim Cook are ferociously scary uh, negotiators. It's believable. And when you hear it about Eddie based on his onstage demeanor, it does seem hard to imagine. I, you can't, I can't imagine it, but he, you know, he, I think if there's ever any place where he's got like a different demeanor, it's when he's at the yes. negotiating table. It is different, clearly different than his, uh, his stage demeanor and is you know if you if you say hi to him you know backstage or something like and that, that must be so disarming because if someone comes in like they're darth vader you're preparing yourself for darth vader but if someone comes in as your best friend then all of a sudden all the oxygen gets sucked out of the room you're just not ready for that right i saw one complaint i saw a, an article that somebody wrote about um uh that that uh, I didn't. I don't think I linked to it. I almost did. Not because I agreed with it, but in the spirit of sometimes I like to link to things I disagree with, but that I find worth considering. 
it's like the rarest thing. It was an article about uh, that called Apple's event creepy as hell. Yeah. And one of his complaints was that it was just one guy after another all dressed the same with the exact same, almost the exact same shirt on. And I, I see what he means. We actually commented on it in the show. It almost seems like maybe Apple needs to coordinate that a little bit better. It was, you know, it really was a series of very similar bluish with, you know, muted dark blue button down. Eddie had his product red shirt on. Well, that's the thing. (laughs) I don't see how you, I see how you can complain. And I see how uh, Tim and Jeff Williams uh, and Schiller and a few others had roughly similar shirts on. Um, I don't see though how you write that sentence without at least putting in a parenthetical about Eddie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Eddie's shirt was so crazily Eddie that it 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 demanded to be mentioned. If you're going to talk about the shirts of the people on stage, you got it. You really had to mention that. I almost think like Eddie is is going in like a. Um, like uh, you remember Doc Severinsen, the guy who yes. was a band leader on the, the Johnny Carson show. Absolutely, he, he, he wore deliberately outlandish costumes, and Carson could crack jokes about it. Like I feel like Eddie's going in that route, where he he he's just wears he wears goofy shirts on purpose. It's part of the negotiating. He distracts you with the shirt and then goes in for the kill. Right, because he actually didn't have that shirt on before the event. You know, like pre-event, Apple's uh, senior executives mingle down in front uh, in front of the stage um, you know like in the you know half hour 45 minutes leading up to the event and and I saw you know Eddie down there and he was wearing a, I don't know what it was I didn't really take notice but I certainly would have taken notice if he was wearing that shirt and he wasn't like so he actually gets into costume backstage like to to come out yeah, I joked about this but I seriously want to just turn off the internet often after Apple events I saw a whole thing about how Johnny Ive didn't appear physically in the video and there must be something wrong but we saw him all over the event he was he was oh, exactly yeah. like Johnny always was yes exactly no he was all over the place afterwards um, no there's nothing that's stupid it's the fact that the fact is that they've upped they've well it's I guess it's a matter of taste whether they've upped the style of those narrated videos but they have seemingly abandoned the previous uh, I'm gonna call it a format but you want to call it a style like template where it's the white background that that seemingly infinite white universe background and you'd see the people doing the talking you know all I think they were always on the right side looking to the left if you're looking at the screen Um and you know this like, like as though they were filmed doing a sit down interview yes. and instead now it's a black background and they're darker and it's entirely shots of the products and pure voiceover from Johnny Ive and just Johnny there's i mean they don't have Dan Riccio they used to have um they used to have a bunch of people in those ads. They don't have Johnny Saruji. It, no. it's, it's entirely a Johnny Ive. But, you know, it was getting to the point where people were making fake versions of those. And I think once you have your Saturday Night Live moment, you've got to move on. Yeah, I think maybe that's part of it. And that, it, you know, they just got old, you know. Uh, what's his name? Big Bob uh, yeah, Mansf- Mansfield. Big yeah. Mansfield appeared in them as Dan well. Dan Richo was in some of them. I mean, they've had several people. They've had uh, Joswiak in some of them. Yes, definitely. Um, I always like seeing Big Bob Mansfield. He was great. He just seems so nice. I really a lot of them like they they really do come off the way they come off in those videos. I think they really do enjoy what they're doing. Yes, well, absolutely. 
I don't see there's any other reason that they would stick around. No. Um, I'm trying to think. Anything else with the event? No, just that it was, I mean, we spoke about it briefly before the event, and we said if they if they were going to do all this stuff, they were going to have to yada yada a lot of things, and they did. They yada yada a lot of things. Yeah, they definitely And apparently they cut a lot of stuff. Like, there was apparently a lot more stuff yeah. that just couldn't fit in. Yeah, I, I heard. Yeah. I'm curious who does that. Because um, previously, it was, without question, it was Steve Jobs. Yeah. He was the director of those shows, and it was unquestioned, it, and he had a gift, I, and, you know... They were easier to put together when he was around because his gift was such that if you laid out the products that here's the stuff we'd like to announce. Here's all of it. Jobs can just look at that table of stuff, whether it's software, you know, hardware, whatever the mix is. And the show just came to his head, like the basic structure. What do we do first? What do we do second? What do we do third? What gets cut? And it just came to him. And it's not that they came to him and then they didn't have to rehearse. And, you know, then they'd start rehearsing. And as they're rehearsing, the flaws in the flow, the lulls and everything just came to him. And he would just say, that's that's too long. That's got to be 30 seconds. And that's it. And nobody, you know, there weren't really arguments over it. It went. Uh, and somebody who's maybe stuck. See, the, and the thing... That, that really sticks out to me when you watch other companies' events is that the in, inner company politics just comes spewing out the sides of the event in terms of you can just see that it's this division and that division, and they both want time on the stage, and they want it for the sake of their own internal uh, bureaucratic uh, status, yeah. not whether giving equal time or 10 minutes of time to this other thing is good for the flow of the show and therefore therefore best for the for the interest of the company as a whole in terms of keeping people's interest and making sure that the limited time of this event is allocated uh properly and i think you know steve jobs could single-handedly solve that because who whatever internal quabbles there were in turf wars under him uh, the buck stopped with him and he could stop it tim cook obviously has that authority and I think it would be unquestioned, but he doesn't have, I don't think he, he's the guy who has the sense of showmanship to know, you know, which stuff to put in which order and stuff like that. And I, yeah. I, I really do think that's what was wrong with the WWDC keynote is that it was just sort of a jumble and sort of randomly structured as opposed to ordered in a way that was harmonious. Yeah, to your point, like it felt like Steve Jobs could look at one of those weird, you know, those weird paintings and just see the pattern that was hidden inside it. It would just pop out at him. You'd wonder why no one else could see it. It's so obvious. And now uh, Tim Cook seems to treat them where before it was Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive and everything radiating out from there. Tim Cook seems to treat them as if they're running their own sub companies in a way. And it feels like, you know, Jeff's running watch. Who does Jeff want to present the watch? If he wants to, that's fine. If not, we'll find somebody. Eddie's going to do the iTunes uh, org segment. If he doesn't want to do parts of it, who's going to do those? And they get to make those decisions. And maybe arguably you'd want uh, Tim Cook or Johnny Ive to make some of those decisions, but he seems content to allow them to own those fields. Yeah, but not if he doesn't. If he, I think one of the, I think one of the seemingly amazing things about Tim Cook is that he seems extraordinarily comfortable sticking to what he's good at and yes. knowing what he's good at, and he's clearly very, very good at certain things, and then not not feeling the least bit defensive or um, inadequate about the things that he's not good at. Even though those are some amazing things that his immediate predecessor was amazingly good at, 
like it I don't think it bothers Tim Cook in the least that he's not uh he doesn't have that sense of showmanship that Steve Jobs had. And, no, and he's clear, running a very different Apple. Yeah, and clearly it doesn't bother him in the least that he doesn't have the sense of design that Steve Jobs had. I mean, I'm sure Tim Cook offers feedback and he's very, very tuned in to the development of these products. And I think if he does have an opinion or a question, I don't think I'm sure he doesn't hesitate to ask. But he doesn't have any problem letting Johnny Ive take over as the the buck stops here sense of design for the company. One of my favorite moments during the event was Tim Cook walked into the Apple TV area with One Republic, and he wanted to show them an iPad. Uh, or they were asking about the iPad Pro, and it wasn't in that area. But there were a group of people. Uh, some of the guides there had them, so one of the guides offered it to him, and he just picked it up and started giving a complete hands-on demo to One Republic, showing them the features, almost like he was working at an Apple store. It was remarkable. Yeah, I was. It was nearby. I actually saw that until they wandered off. But yeah. it, it's. Um, his knowledge of what's being announced is as as deep as it could be. Yeah. Like, you know, if he needed to, he could do everything. I mean, it would take forever because he talks so slow. But <laughs> Well, it seems like he doesn't drive design the way Steve Jobs did, but no. he really does appreciate the details of what they do. Yeah, and, or, and he pays attention to what they do. Yeah. He is very much aware of it. Like, that's there's no glossing over on, on that stuff. Um, Event-wise, though, that probably wraps it up. Uh, All right, I'll take another break here, and let me talk about our next sponsor, and it is our very good friends at Backblaze. Backblaze does online backup for your Mac or your PC. They've got PC, I've heard. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But more or less what you do is you install Backblaze on your Mac or your PC, um, I guess. And... You get a free demo, risk-free, no credit card. Turn it on, sign up, and it just starts uploading everything on your computer to Backblaze's online storage. Everything. You have an external hard drive, backs that up too. Oh, but it's, you know, uh, three terabytes? Nope, it'll back it up. Um, There's no magic to it. Like, whatever your upstream internet connection is from your home or your office to the internet is going to limit how long that initial backup takes. There's, there's They don't have any kind of magic involved that's going to get two terabytes uploaded in an hour. Um, so it might take a while. It might take days. Um, but they know that. And it's, like, engineered with that in mind. It and, and the other thing they do, too, is they don't just blindly take all of your upstream bandwidth. It's not like your computer is... I, honestly, I've done it. I've just reinstalled it on a couple of new machines uh, within the last few months and gone through the first uh, the first run of using Backblaze, you don't notice that it's running. You don't notice that it's doing the initial backup. It's not like, you know, all of a sudden everything else on your computer is slow. It just works. It's worked and, and it's written by people who, who, who use it and know what it's meant for. Um, anyway, once everything's uploaded and, and there and you have a complete backup, it just silently runs in the background and slowly, you know, as you make changes and add stuff, just keeps it up to date. Um, it, it is a remarkable, remarkable service. Uh, and it's, it's just an unbelievable price. There are no add-ons. There's no gimmicks. There's no additional charges. It's not like you get a terabyte free and then uh, you have to pay for more or whatever. You just pay $5 per month per computer and you get unlimited unthrottled backup. It's just unbelievable. Um, 
when you want to get files back, what do you do? Well, you can just log in. If you just need one file, maybe you're you know on your iPhone, you can use their app and just get access to one file from your Mac, from anywhere you are in the world, and then email it or, or do whatever you want with it. Um, 25% of all of the restores from BlackBlaze customers are just one file at a time. Um, but if you need everything back, you can order a USB hard drive and it'll just show up you know by overnight with everything on it can't can't be better uh so stop putting it off you'll feel if you're not backing up offline even if you have backups right there in your in your office in your house local backups to another hard drive which is great i do too um just just you'll feel so much better with an off-site backup too you can't you can't back up to enough different places and if you want to get a backup that's in the cloud off off-site i can't recommend anything better than backblaze go to backblaze.com slash the talk show and they'll know that you came from the show um and check them out install it now don't don't put it off really just pause pause this podcast and go get started uh install it get it started uh it'll take you like five minutes and then come back and listen to the rest of the show all right so i guess we could talk about what they announced at the show yeah i'm curious what you think of the um iPad Pro with the pen because you are maybe not you're you know a serious illustrator but you're certainly a hobbyist illustrator or at least you're a Batman illustrator. Oh, so I, I I do that to screw around, but my one of I I drew every day um, like comic booky stuff when I was growing up and I went to college for art and then I worked as a designer for seven eight years using Wacom tablets every day uh, and uh, doing Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign just constantly until I became muscle memory and though I had a love-hate relationship with those because they were better than anything else but they were never exactly a digital pen and Apple's pencil is it's remarkable if I'm sure if you just used it you'd find that too but uh, if if you've been using Wacom for a while or you've used styluses on the iPad it's hard to it's hard to properly frame the difference, but it just never felt like a proper pen to me. It wasn't heavy enough, it, or did, it was too slippery, and Apple's fixed all of that. There is no paper drag, but they've got a material on the tip of the pencil that has just enough drag on the screen that makes you feel like it's a real thing, that there's real contact there. And the weight is absolutely perfect, and the way that it, it they do this really fancy sort of... Uh, uh, prediction algorithm for where you're going to go and once in a while you can you can you can fool it but it catches up super quick but it makes you feel like you're literally drawing right on the screen and because there's no intermediating layer the way there is with Wacom they have a whole layer between the display and and, uh, and the sensors it feels like you are drawing those pixels into the glass and I used it for about I did the same thing that you did I went there at the end and I used it for about 20 minutes and I put my hand down on it to test palm rejection I did very quick cross hatching and Serenity gave me a whole long list of things to test too because she did all the stylus yeah. reviews and I did, I did everything I could to screw that thing over and it kept with me and it was the first time I actually felt like I could sit there with a, a pad of paper and sketch on a digital device yeah that that's something that didn't really occur to me during the event I thought I was thinking of it and I mean obviously you know it was rumored that it was you know a big iPad and and it would there'd be some kind of uh, optional stylus type thing attached to it so drawing was obviously part of it it hadn't occurred to me though that they weren't just going for a better stylus on iPad experience than what was possible with third party yeah. styluses until now. And that instead they were going to take like the Wacom stuff and make it look bad. You know, that this is the preeminent computerized drawing thing in the world, period. 
I, it just didn't occur to me until afterwards in the hands-on area when I was walking around with uh, uh, Michael B. Johnson, aka Doctor Wave, yes. on Twitter. Um, I, honestly, I've I forewent firsthand t- experience with the the with the iPad and pen because, like we said, the, the hands-on area was crowded. Um, I I forewent doing that myself just to hang with Dr. Wave and listen to his questions. He was a guest, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but you know it, what he does at Pixar is build internal tools for Pixar artists. Um, and this, this device is of great interest to him and to listen to his questions about refresh rates and parallax and, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, I, I felt like I learned more by letting, you know, just sort of being, a, a you know, just looking over his shoulder um, really, really fascinating. So, and it became clear in that aftermath that that's really what Apple had done is that this is, a, you know, a, a, a dramatic uh, step forward in terms of drawing, you know, for any kind of artist. It's one of those things where they see an area where something is just not as good as they want it to be. And if they believe that they can make a difference, they're going to go all out and try and do it. And they doubled the refresh, uh, the scanning rate inside the Mac, sorry, the iPad Pro. So it, it technically doesn't work on older generation iPads, though they could update the hardware eventually for that. But they're combining that with technology like the, the Force Touch or 3D Touch inside the pencil and a lot of smarts for tilt, uh, direction, positioning. And they're measuring on a bunch of different axes. And, they, and they've got all the software behind that too. And it really... It, it feels like magic, and that's a really dumb thing to say. But they're doing so much computational work there that the end it ends up just feeling like a pencil. Yeah, there was a, a blog post I linked to yesterday, written by uh, Linda Dong, who now, admittedly, she's a former Apple designer. So yes. if you wanted to say she's biased, you can. But she's former, well, because if she was present, she wouldn't be blogging about it. But she's done interaction design and stuff for Apple, um, and does a lot of her work. Has done a lot of her work on on the Wacom uh, Cintiqs. Uh, I, I thought her little just quick, you know, like here's all the ways that this is better. It was amazing. So the Cintiqs aren't retina, so they have pixels that an artist can see. Mm-hmm. Um, the pen, she says, you know, the pen you use with them is janky and it feels junky and has a bunch of buttons you can actually hit. Um, there's parallax between the surface of the thing and the actual display underneath, which for almost any angle that would be comfortable for an artist is going to be an issue. Uh, and there, there's latency. There's there's palpable latency. Yes. So combine those just as highlights of here's how this thing is better. It's blow away good. And you can almost see them the way that they did with the smartphone. And they looked at the existing market and they said, what are the problems? What are the pain points? And can we fix them? And they made that list and they just knocked them down one after the other. Yeah. My question here's my big question about all of this though is, and and obviously there's you know however many other uses for for the iPad Pro, but how big is the market for making the pen work as well as this is? I, like, I have no idea how big that market is. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, there are a lot of people who went out and bought Microsoft Surfaces just because they wanted to do this kind of illustration work. And that's, you know, obviously it wasn't enough to make the Surface successful product, but it was interesting to me that there was that demand. And I don't think, I think sometimes Apple just wants to do what they think is better and they know that that technology will trickle down. Like maybe in, in the future, an iPad Air, an iPad Mini, maybe even an iPhone will benefit from this technology, but it takes their launching a big product to bring everything together to make it a reality. Right, because there's a there's all the magic that's in the pen, and in theory yeah. that that you know the pen could work, at, you know, with any other device. Uh, but there's also new technology in the iPad Pro itself that works with the pen for getting the 
you know, the pressure sensitivity and stuff like that. Like, however thin the layer now is in a modern on the modern Apple devices between the, the actual display and the surface of the glass above it, however thin that is, and I really do think they're not exaggerating to call that gap microscopic. Mm -hmm. They've got sensors in there to measure at microscopic levels the the degree of pressure that's you know that's being applied twice the resolution of the ones in the iPad Air and the iPhone apparently yeah yeah and they do magical stuff now with the with the refresh rate where if they sense that you're not doing anything that's that's very dynamic they can cycle that down to save power there's a lot of technology in that display yeah uh, and I think that they've I, uh, again I'm I think they've 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 improved refresh rates in two ways there's the drawing refresh rate where just what it's displaying, what the what the iPad Pro is displaying, has this dynamic visual refresh rate. So if you're watching a video where everything is changing all the time, it's you know refreshing at whatever rate. But if this you know it stops, if you're drawing something and you stop, and it detects that you've stopped and nothing is animated on screen, it, it'll slow it down and yeah. that can you know definitely ch save on the energy. But I also believe, if not know that they have doubled the refresh rate of reading the touch sensors. Yeah. Right? And so yeah, as even if you're just drawing your with your finger, even if you're just sliding your finger over it, it's got double the refresh rate of checking just where your finger is. Yeah, and it all comes together like to Linda's post that it just does so many things that no one else is doing right now because yeah. they're, they're hard things to do. That all those refresh rate things though seem like things that could could and will eventually trickle down to across the whole iOS lineup. I mean, why not? I mean, whether they'll work with the pen, I don't know. But at the very least, you know, it, you know, increasing the touch refresh rate, you know, seems like it would be just as you know useful in in ways to any iPad and phone. Yeah, there is so much. I mean, they've they've shown their own custom timing controllers for things like the 5K iMac, and now for the iPad Pro, they've shown that new chip that lets them flash the iPhone screen three times as bright to make a selfie flash. They've they've shown they can do OLED with the Apple Watch and keep things to super low refresh rates. Uh, sorry, super low, super power, super efficient uh, energy rates. Where they're going with all this, the thing that's always so impressive to me is that Apple. They're not like Qualcomm and they're not even quite like Samsung. They get to make the parts exactly for what they want to do. So you take a look at like the A9 processor. And to me, this is light years ahead of the rest of the industry now. And if you told me 10 years ago, Apple would be leading in any chipset business, I, I would have thought it was insane. But they're doing it and they're, they don't have to care about profit or loss on a chipset like Qualcomm does because they're not selling them. They don't have to worry about supporting Microsoft and Android and other architectures because they're only supporting their own. If they want to make a feature like, like this, they can just make the silicon that supports it. And I think that over time, that becomes a, a stronger and stronger advantage for them. I really do wonder, and I know that like something like Geekbench is not, it doesn't give you everything you, you know need to know about how fast one machine is comparable to another, but it's not bad. It's mm -hmm. not a bad like starting point if you just want to put a number on it. And I think Geekbench in particular is designed in a way that to me, seems you know like a good balance of the various factors um really really curious to see where the ipad pro benchmarks yeah. because i said last week that i think it'll benchmark like it'll it might beat like a 2013 macbook air um it I, i'm wondering if i sold it short it might beat like the macbook air that you can go in and buy today i'm not uh, maybe that's too much i don't know but i i'm i'm pretty sure that it 
it's going to be close. It's almost like apples and oranges now because, again, they are building the software and the hardware down to the chipset all to work together and you don't see that like people will complain oh you know the iphone needs more ram android's got four gigabytes of ram but that that really is meaningless because they're running an interpreted language they're doing garbage collection they're not have they don't have they have software that's built for a wide set of devices not specifically if you're saying you need more ram because oh safari can't keep a tab loaded to memory that's absolutely justified but their their ability to do this lets them pick and choose exactly the components that they need and i think that's where you get that performance from yeah um it's just sort of astounding though i mean it's uh, to go from where the ipad started in 2010 and 2011 and it was a compelling device especially starting with the ipad 2 in 2011 um but not for reasons of pure performance compared to a mac or even just like a macbook air which has always been you know the slowest mac in the lineup um it's for other reasons. It was, okay, so it's not as fast, but you can carry it around all day, but it'll last 10 hours. But touch is more um, intimate. And, and it, you know, it sounds touchy-feely, no pun intended, but it really does give you a more intimate experience. Um, there were all these buts. It's kind of fascinating that performance is no longer a but. Yeah. Well, if you look at the uh, the MacBook, the brand new MacBook, that's running Broadwell Y, and it's hard to look at the Apple A9 and not think, you know, Apple's just soundly kicking their ass in mobile too. It really does. Um, and again, I think, again, we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. But if not, if I'm wrong, it's not going to be my much. That, yeah. that the iPad Air 2, or not iPad Air 2, iPad Pro is going to benchmark faster than the Surface Pro 3s that are running Intel chips. Uh and and that was like the whole thing with the Surface is that they had, well, we've got the regular Surface, which is ARM. Uh, and that's if you want something thinner and lighter. And then we've got the Surface Pro, which uses Intel's mobile chips because that's, you know, that's where you need for the speed. And Apple has, you know, rel- in relatively short order, just like two years later, has said, you don't need to make that compromise. You can get all the advantage, all of the advantages of ARM and beat intel on performance i used to say this and people thought i was just being a dick but i meant it that when you look at the surface uh, running windows was not an advantage it was a detriment in many cases because windows was just not designed to do that at all and ios was and that's why i think apple with their tablets and even with the ipad pro gets that right i always wanted them to put win before they started merging everything i always wanted them to put windows phone on a surface and see what it could really do but just the idea that this is a touch first mobile operating system built on a device that is mobile it, it gives them a tremendous advantage yeah i think so too um the next thing, in addition to the pencil for the iPad Pro, is the, and here, you know, you can't not talk about the Surface in this case, is the smart keyboard, um, where you've got a magnetically attached keyboard or cover that when you unfold it has a physical keyboard inside. So much better than the original iPad with that keyboard stand. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But it's funny, you know, it's funny how, how you go around and it, in five years, it just looks like, what the hell are they thinking? But yeah. at the time, they, you know, they didn't know, you yeah. know. It just didn't know, but clearly this 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 smart keyboard is you know uh, it's you know Microsoft did it first. I mean, yes. so credit to them. Um, I'm curious why it's um, and I, maybe the answer is just wait a year 
uh, or maybe wait half a year. Who knows? Maybe there'll be an event. I don't think there's going to be an event this year, but maybe there'll be like an early 2016 event. Why there's not one for the iPad Air 2? And I know that it's full size, you know, it's bigger and more comfortable. And I've, you know, tried the ones in the demo area last week. But it seems to me like an iPad Air 2 is big enough for a keyboard. My guess is they're waiting for the iPad Air 3, which will have those same three connectors that the iPad Pro has that makes the docking and undocking so easy for the new keyboard. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's got to have those three, it's got to have those three, whatever they're calling that, smart connector. Yeah, smart connector. Um, look at me remembering the name of something. Awesome. Uh, I think it's got to be that they're waiting for an iPad Air 3. It'll have the smart connector, and it just wasn't ready yet. And Or maybe they didn't want to... Um, Maybe they didn't want to release it yet. Yeah, going back to your older point, and the thing with Steve Jobs that was so great on stage is he could not, he, it wasn't just that he saw the story and could arrange their products, but he could tell you the story. And maybe the original iPhone and the iPad 2 events were quintessential examples of that. And I think this Apple knows that they're not quite as good at telling stories yet. And, you know, absent that narrative, I think that they have to be, they have to be more focused. And if they start talking about an iPad Air with a keyboard or with a pencil, it just takes away from the iPad Pro. And they need to be very careful about keeping the focus on that one product. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it makes sense, even if they could have done it now, that it made sense to, to wait. And maybe it will be. Maybe they'll go off cycle with iPad Air 4, uh, or I guess it would be iPad Air 3, and maybe do it in the spring if they have something else to announce with it. Yeah, it's interesting because the watch, the watch debuted with um, Watch OS 1, but Watch OS 2 is coming out with the same hardware. They're not, they're not linking those product cycles, so maybe they're willing to do that more often. Yeah, and it's, you know... I don't think they're married to it. I think they kind of are with the iPhone. It's convenient, though. I mean, if the best time to show it off is WWDC, and the best time to ship iPhones is in September, and those things just line up very nicely for them. Yeah, I think with something new like the watch, it's it's so unpredictable. Or not watch. Yeah, well, the watch is, is, yeah. is new. It's so unpredictable that it makes sense to just not worry about getting it on the exact quarter that you want it to come out on until they're more, more regularized you know production and everything absolutely and no no more about the you know and also they need to stagger i mean those apple like you said they have small teams and those teams are continuously running marathons of sprints and they have to like almost like you know when guy talks about the video game industry they have to be careful to to balance those people out because they will burn them if they're not careful yeah i totally agree with that um so here's what's interesting. Smart keyboard cover is 169 bucks. Yeah. Which is a lot, really. I mean, especially since the starting price on the iPad lineup is now like $249. Like you can get an iPad. I mean, it's, you know, it's the the old mini, but um you can get a whole iPad for 249, but the keyboard for the iPad Pro is 169 bucks. I think it's the most expensive Apple keyboard since my beloved Apple Extended Keyboard 2. The Microsoft Surface Pro Type Cover keyboard in Canadian dollars at least is 175. Yeah, I, and it's, you know, I think it's a complicated bit of of machinery. So I I I and I think it feels like a valuable cover. Um and obviously since the whole machine is Eight hundred to eleven hundred dollars, and I think I think most people who buy this are going to get the eleven hundred dollar one. They're going to get the one with one hundred twenty eight yeah. gigs in the the cellular for consumers. Um, you go bigger, you go Kindle. I think that's what we've learned. Yeah, um, 
Well, I, I think that the, that the entry level one, oddly enough, is is more for like a, a internal professional setting. Like, like, yeah, I think sometimes people aren't like, and, and Apple could do more. They could absolutely identify, like they used to do with the eMac, and identify those SKUs better. But like, sixteen gigabyte iPhones and uh, iPad twos and this entry level iPad Pro, there are people who are buying two thousand of them for enterprise, and all they want is business to business apps and web portals, and they they will take a, they'll take almost no storage. Well, like I think they, I think even for like an artistic purpose where you're doing really high end work, but at a place like if you've got like a, a studio. And you're doing work on uh, special effects on a movie or something yep. like that, and you want all of your artists to have this. It makes sense to just buy the Wi-Fi low storage one because the storage isn't really going to be on the iPad anyway. It's going to be on the server within your, you know, within your outfit. You know, what I mean, like, it's not like the artists on working on Star Wars are keeping all of the data on their local machine. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's it's exactly the Scott McNeely or Larry Ellison thin client. That's that's where we've yeah. gotten to finally. Yeah, it's exactly that, and so it makes sense to just get the the one without the you know it's not the and the and the studio these these artistic machines they're not leaving so they don't need cellular. That's just you know wasted you know wasted money and wasted thickness if 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 they're a little thicker like they were or just a wasted antenna, yeah. um, and they don't need the storage if they're never going to use the storage. Why in the world? buy it why not just you know get the low end one so i think it is odd that there's no lte skew for that because apple's always had the same wi-fi and lte skews for all of their ipads this is the first time where you have to get the more expensive one if you want lte yeah that is interesting but i do think it's telling towards the intended use yes i think that if you want to use it as a laptop you know this is my portable now i shouldn't even say laptop because you know laptop word is loaded in terms of how you use it as your portable computer Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, you're gonna want the the additional storage because 128 gigabytes of storage is not that much for a, a portable computer. No, and it's four gigabytes of RAM too. So I mean, it it does have the constraints of a mobile device still. Right, but it's you know that's the one that's specked out like a, a this is my portable computer, and the 32 gig one is specked out like this is like an artist. This is my studio computer. Right. This is my drawing tablet. Did you get a chance to try the keyboard? I I spent only a few minutes with it, but I like the Mac. Like I like low keyboards. I like the MacBook keyboard a lot, and I know you have very different tastes in keyboards. Yeah, I don't like any laptop keyboard though. Like yeah. I don't even you know like I think that the the MacBook Pro keyboard. I have right now is probably my favorite laptop keyboard I've ever used. Um, and if not, it's close. And I still think it's kind of a crap keyboard <laughs> compared to my, you know, big clacky yeah. Apple extended keyboard too. I make do, I mean, I write, you know, thousands of words a year on that MacBook pro. Um, and if you could connect an IBM Selectric, you would. Well, <laughs> probably not in, not in any of the areas where I would use the MacBook pro. Yeah. I would only do that if I were using it as my only computer you know, at my desk. Yes. But then when I'm away. So, I mean, I make do. I mean, I am picky about keyboards, but I make do. I don't find the new MacBook one. Again, I haven't lived with that machine, so I don't know. But just playing around with it in the stores and stuff, I mean, I could definitely make do. It doesn't seem that much worse than the 11-inch the, uh, uh, MacBook Air that I used as my portable for four years. Yeah, I use it. It took me an hour to get used to it. The only problem I have now is that it's still, it goes right to the edge of the machines. Every time I pick it up, I accidentally hit escape or enter or something. I have to remember to pick it up from the bottom. Yeah, and it does, it, 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 having tried this thing at the event last week, the, the keyboard, 
you know, the travel is obviously very low, but it travels enough that it's there absolutely is a clickiness to it, which in and of itself is a huge win over um, any, anything like that that I've tried before, you know. And I like that Apple had, I mean, Logitech announced the same day. So Apple's letting anyone connect, maybe not anyone, but they're letting partners connect to those smart connectors. And that means that there'll be a range of different keyboards available for it. Yeah, I thought that that Logitech announcement was interesting and sort of another new Apple thing where they obviously, you know, looped looped them in in advance. And, you know, they haven't unveiled the details, but they obviously looped them in. And I think, I think that the thinking is that Apple decided this is what we want to build. We want to build one keyboard. It's going to be a fold-up cover. Obviously, with this port, the potential is there for all sorts of other things, including something that's more of like a leave it at your desk yeah. base station, right? So if you're just going to use this, and I think this is a very, for a lot of people, I think it's a really interesting scenario where this is your main computer and you take it around. When you're at your desk, why don't you, wouldn't you want a keyboard that's even better as a key, as a keyboard uh, than the smart cover? Well, there, there's lots exactly what this Logitech seems like. We don't know the details. They've only shown one little uh, carefully cropped photo of it but i mean that's what it seems like to me yeah i still have a drafting table uh, that i've used since i was in high school and i was figuring you know could i put the ipad pro on that and then tilt it down when i want to draw on it then tilt it up and just stick it in the keyboard when i want to I'm, tr I'm trying to figure out all the possible use cases it's almost like a lazy boy situation now where you can recline as much as you want yeah um yeah, exactly. I, I wonder how much you can adjust the, the Logitech keyboard. And obviously, there's going to be others. Other yep. Everybody else who makes these these sort of peripherals is going to make something for this. Um, and it is going to be a MFI port. Um, is MFI still made for iPhone? Or? Uh, or iPod originally. But yeah, like even the Apple Watch stuff, I think they're calling MFI still instead of MFW. Right, and which is really weird there because there's no I uh, yeah. involved. Um yeah, it's going to be MFI. It's exactly, you know, licensed exactly along, you know, the same way that they license things like the Lightning uh, adapter. So yeah. anybody who wants to is going to be able to play along. But I think that's really interesting. And it really occurs to me, people have been chasing the dream of the docked computer. I mean, as long as there have been portables. I mean, and Apple's had, you know, what were they called? The duos? Yeah. The Power PowerBook duos. duos with docks. And there's pros and cons with all of them. But the big thing whenever you try to do it, is and you know even today there's maybe not there's there's no dock for a, a macbook pro but certainly you can and i know i know lots and lots of people who do uh live off one computer it's probably a macbook pro and but when they get to their desk they have a, a nice big display to connect it to um the the hassle of the docked lifestyle is in the tethering and untethering of all the mm -hmm. various things you need to plug in power and USB and um, you know especially on the Mac it, the big annoying thing is if you have if you need to connect external storage well now you've got this thing that you can't just unplug you actually have to go in, in software and unmount it and make yes. sure that whatever software was using it is no longer using those open files uh, and if you just want to get up and go it's a huge pain in the ass with the iPad Pro, you're never going to have to do anything but get up and go. And you probably won't even need, uh, in most cases, because of the battery life that things get, you won't even need to plug in Lightning to uh, charge the iPad while you're using it. You'll just charge the iPad overnight, come in to the office, and just ka -chunk, put it right on your keyboard, 
And then whenever you want to get up and go, just, just pick it up. And it's super fascinating to me, too, because there are some companies who really think that they can. That was a famous Microsoft saying, right? No compromises. And it resulted in the biggest compromise ever because you, you literally cannot be all things to all people. You can't serve right. every market equally well. And Apple's being very, they're taking interesting choices here. Like the MacBook is as close as you can get to being an iPad while still being a Mac. And this is as close as you can get to being a MacBook almost while still being an iPad. And they're not trying to do it all in one device. They're giving you these devices that both have unique identities still, but are optimized along the same sort of line and you just pick which side of it you want to be on yeah um um that's a good way to put it i mean but and and you know there's obviously compromises with all of it you know there's you know the compromises with the ipad pro are obvious there is no external storage because there's no concept of it in ios there is no usb port or USB-C or anything that you can plug in an external drive uh it doesn't have built-in sd card you have to go you know with the lightning to SD card thing. And it's not, you know, it works and people use it, but it's not something you're going to keep plugged in all the time. You have to mostly want a tablet and then just occasionally want to use a keyboard with, or, right. you know, just for a certain segment of things, use a keyboard for Right. Um, so I'm interested. What do you think they're going to sell more of? I, off the top of your head, do you think they're going to sell more smart keyboards or pencils? I, I'm just assuming, and maybe I'm biased because that's my background, but I, I'm assuming the pencil because that really is a, a completely better take on that technology where we've had sort of keyboards on, on iPads before, and maybe Logitech will sell more than Apple even. We don't know. Just, there, there's be a whole, they'll be fragmented across a variety of manufacturers. But I think the pencil is going to be unique to this device for a while. Yeah, and I think that there's, as kids grow older, I know the ATP guys mentioned it last week, but I've, I've heard about it from Apple people for years, is that the younger you are, the less likely you are to really give a crap about on-screen keyboard versus physical keyboard yeah. of any kind, whether it's built into the cover or whatever. That you know, kids who've grown up or, or are growing up in the iOS era um, see an on-screen touch keyboard as completely normal. It's interesting because uh, previously, like you and I went through the migration from uh, digital to become digitally native. People weren't digitally native. They were analog native. They were reading newspapers and they became digitally native. And now you have people who are touch native and using external and, and intermediated input devices is just not the computing that they understand. Uh, even when the MacBook launched and people were complaining they couldn't plug their external monitor into it, the amount of people who plug an external monitor into a MacBook is tiny. It's all of our friends on Twitter, but it's, it's single digit percentage point. And it's just not normal behavior. And that's, I think, increasingly driving Apple's products. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, anything else on iPad Pro you want to talk about? I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to try them, but the speakers were just, they were marvelous. Oh. You could just turn them. They had these big echo chambers, four really loud speakers. And when you rotated from landscape to portrait or just in 360 degrees, it kept up with you. Yeah. I, it occurs to me that for all the belly aching that's gone on about uh, the mono output of iOS devices um, that the way that they went stereo with this is like, oh, and and going with four speakers, that had never occurred to me before. Um, Maybe because I'm unimaginative, but, and that, you know, obviously uh, just like the screen rotates, the speakers rotate, or at least, you know, the speakers don't physically rotate, but the concept of which sound is coming from whichever. It they knows, crossfade, yeah. Right. It knows what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right, no matter which way you're holding the device. Uh, and boy, in the demo area, as noisy and crowded as it was, boy, it certainly seemed like something. Like, hey, that's something. 
yeah, it, it was really impressive. And I just can't wait to actually get the device and put on like Avengers Age of Ultron or something full blast and, and start rotating and see how well it does. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And I wonder, you know, uh, you know, like, I don't know, a lot of people watch a lot of video on, on, on iPads. It's that yeah. size is obviously makes it better if you're willing to carry it around. But boy, the difference in sound output if you're not using headphones is dramatic now. And this, I mean, before people used to joke that the I, the iPad was a big iPhone, I always thought it was more like an iPhone gone iMax. And this really is an iPad gone iMax because when you're holding it close, it fills your field of view. And whether it's a game or a movie or something, it really is immersive. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the weight, I guess the last thing I'll just mention is uh, I know that it sounds bad that it's a little t- like a three hundredths of a pound yeah. heavier than the original ipad because the original ipad sure feels heavy compared to modern ipads um and there's certain scenarios where i guess if you're walking around with it and and holding it in certain ways you're definitely going to feel that but it's so much more balanced and, and mm-hmm. it 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 sure is hard to believe that it's as heavy as the original ipad when you pick it up and hold it because it's it's so much more distributed um throughout the whole device yeah, it's like the iPhone 6 Plus is equivalent to a smaller, heavier iPhone, but because it's so spread out, you really don't feel that in normal use, especially when you hold it near the middle. Yeah, it definitely feels lightweight, even though it's, you know, by iPad standards, humongous. Um, all right, let's move on. Let me take another break here and thank uh, our next sponsor and uh, another longtime friend of the show. Love these guys. Igloo. Igloo is the intranet you'll actually like you i i say intranet and you work in the enterprise or something like that and you just you're probably already like rolling your eyes you're sick because uh most intranets that are out there like sharepoint and stuff like that look like they were designed in 1997 and uh, in large part it's because they were uh in igloo is modern new intranet software hosted uh by them and it is modern in all the right ways. Uh, everything they do is uh, looks just as good, and it looks like it was just as well designed for your phone as it was for your uh, desktop, your laptop, or your you know your upcoming new iPad Pro. Uh, really, really good stuff. Let's you share. What are the things you can do with Igloo? What does an intranet and for the modern day look like? Let you share news. Organize files, share files, coordinate calendars, manage projects, uh, set up little micro blogs, which is sort of like having your own internal Twitter, private, just for your team, just for your company, all in one place. Uh, Their latest upgrade, the one that they've been working on for 2015, revolves around documents and how you interact with them, gather feedback, and make changes. Um, so they've added things like the ability to track who has read critical information to keep everyone on the same page. It's more or less like read receipts in email, except uh, just for shared documents on the internet and way less annoying than read receipts in email. Um, but if you've got a document that uh, certain people on your team have to sign off on for some kind of compliance or just the way the rules of your, your team work, uh, you do that through Igloo and you get that feedback right there in the Igloo system itself. Uh, really, really great. Apparently, really, really high in demand from their customers. So, uh, you know, me, my team is one person. I, but, you know, a lot of people out there have teams with more people. Uh, signing off on these agreements and stuff like that and getting the confirmation right in the Igloo system, big, big hit this year. Uh, if your company has a legacy internet, 
some kind of crap. Or if you don't have any kind of internet and you're just winging it without any kind of centralized, organized internet to keep your team organized, you really should give Igloo a try. Uh, and it's no lose. Giving it a try is the easiest thing in the world. You can get a free trial at igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. You don't really need the slash the talk show, but it lets them know where you're coming from. You get a free trial. You get up to 10 people on your team. You can set up everything you want. The whole thing just works. You can see all the features, see all the things I've been telling you about. And for up to 10 people, it's just free. And that's not just free for a limited time. It's just free. So if you work on a really small team, if you've got under 10 people, you can just use Igloo for free in perpetuity, which is a a deal you can't beat. If you've got more than 10 people, try it with a small team first. See how good it is. And then check out their pricing on additional users. It's super, super competitive. Really, really good. It's about as low as you would think for something that's free for up to 10 people in perpetuity. Really good pricing. Great features. And and they're really innovating. They're Well, innovating, it sounds overwrought. What they're doing is just building new features at a slow, steady pace. Uh, really, really impressive. They keep working on it. It's not, you know, static software. They're really working on it. And it's great stuff. So my thanks to Igloo Software at igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. What was the next thing they announced? Apple TV. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it yet because we just don't know that much. But my first impressions are that it's exactly what I wanted. And I even bitched last week on the show (laughs) that the main thing I really wanted is uh, uh, something Syracuse has been talking about for years too, is to get fast forward and reverse scrubbing get the latency on that and the user experience of that modernize that do what you know that a computer can do which is you know give it a good feel and give it a sense that you know where the hell you're going and where you're going to stop and at least on the dem i know on the on-stage demonstrations that look great in the hands-on area it worked as advertised in my hands it was it, really good, and that's it was, a real especially if you've ever used the the iPhone remote app where you slide and it goes too far; or it doesn't go far oh, enough. It 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 doesn't solve the that iPhone remote app doesn't solve the problem at all. For yes. me. And, in fact, it never never does. I never works the way I want it to. It's, and this was phenomenal. It was just exactly where I wanted it to be. Now, whether it'll work like that for all content from all sources, I don't know because I have found with the current Apple TV that some are worse than others. Um, you know, and iTunes movies, which, you know, you don't really stream, which kind of download in a chunk work better. Um, so who knows how the streaming will work? But I, I, you know, I know that there were people from the, that, that streaming in particular was something that they wanted to get better too. So we'll yeah. see how it works in the real world and we'll see what kind of partnership they get with the companies like Netflix and HBO. And and, and we're I'll, seeing more partnerships too. Like HBO famously switched to the MLB team streaming yeah. for their, and, and those companies are just going to get better and better at it. Well, and I think that they have every interest in working with Apple on getting their experience on this thing as good as possible. And talking yeah. to people from the Apple TV team last week, there's no doubt in my mind that they they take that seriously. Like there is a you know they're exactly like I was hoping that they were. They really really they they were completely dissatisfied with the fast forward and reverse uh, experience on the old Apple TV, and didn't want to just make it a little better wanted to really kind of bring it to the, the, the modern day, really just take a great leap forward in that. And I couldn't be more excited about that. 
and I know this is nerdy, but what I really like is that for a while now, at least on the Apple TV, iPhone, and iPad, we've been running iOS under the covers, just across the platform. And now the watch is that too. They all run iOS, and they all have, you know, backboard and frontboard as, as the 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 platform for those technologies. And then the iPhone and iPad have Springboard, the watch has Carousel, and now Apple TV has, I forget, it was a Pineboard and Headboard or something. But they're all they're all the same thing. They're all running the same platform. You can, as a user, I, I may not know the details of the watch compared to the TV, compared to the iPhone, but I can figure it out because they are very similar things. And for developers, Yes, Apple's doing things like uh, they're making WebKit and, and uh, the web basically a private API for the watch and the Apple TV, and that does have consequences. But essentially, if you know how to make apps for one of them, you can make apps for all of them. Making a watch extension or making an Apple TV app is not something foreign to you. It's not a whole new platform you have to learn. And all the technologies that Apple's been doing, like we talked about for iOS 7 and iOS 8, um, and now in iOS 9, those are leveraged across all of these devices. And it's one of those things where everything Apple does for one of them ends up making all of them better again. Uh, I totally agree, right? There's there's a lot of reuse. Yeah. And, and uh, it everything is not as siloed as it was in the old days. No, they have teams working like the the messages team on the watch knows like are part and parcel with the messages team. Maybe not the exact people, but there's right. they're not segregated anymore. And on demand resources, I mean that's interesting at at, I, uh, at WWDC when they talk about it as part of app thinning. But then you see an Apple TV, and they don't want. And I know there was some concern about this, but they don't want you to have a 32 gigabyte Apple TV, and you go to download an app, and it says your Apple TV is full. You have to delete something, then you got to go and try and figure out. They don't want you to be anywhere near that experience. So there, if your Apple TV is empty, they'll download a 200 megabyte uh, initial file and then immediately start downloading a two gigabyte tag and then immediately start downloading more and as much as they can. But if your Apple TV is almost full, they'll download that first really small file, which will almost assuredly fit and then start uh, removing the less frequently used and older data so they can make room for the new frequently used data. And they're doing this whole nearline management system that makes these devices, hopefully, I guess the, the goal is to make that all seamless for the end user. And yes, it's absolutely more work for a developer has to go through and make these resource slices and tag them and do everything. But the result is, you know, you're sitting there and you want to play Minecraft, you don't get that pop-up saying, sorry, can't install it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, and, and uh, Serenity Caldwell tackled it yeah. very ably in a piece. I don't know if it came out yesterday, or at least yesterday was when I saw it. But, um, you know, that it, it quickly got misinterpreted as apps for Apple TV have a 200 megabyte limit and knowing that you know there's an awful lot of games that that's not enough for um, that's not the case it's just a 200 megabyte initial download just to have an app that's on your Apple TV that you can launch 200 yeah. megabyte limit and then after that whatever other resources you need and let's face it we're mostly talking about games you can start downloading immediately um, and, and it could be anything. It can be levels. It could be texture maps. It could be like you've seen the the introductory tutorial video. You don't need that anymore. It throws it away. Right. You don't need these cutscenes anymore. You don't need these costume packs, or you don't need this expansion pack. It just throws those away. I mean, Guy did. A, I forget what, but Guy did a really good explanation of this too. And I understand like this is not if you just use Unity or you just use um, Epic's engine. Maybe this is is. Could be even be impossible. I don't know, but it might be very difficult to slice your app this way. But they're 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 solving for me sitting on my couch on a small capacity device. Yeah. Um, so I'm impressed by the video latency. Uh, 
I am delighted at this prospect of apps and games yeah. for the thing. Uh, I think I like the controller. I don't know that it's going to be a great controller for games. Um, I think how much gaming actually takes place on this thing, I, I really don't know about. But I think in terms of using it to watch TV, it is it has the potential to, to truly uh, be what we've always hoped Apple TV would be. I agree. And you can only, right now, you can only have one of them attached. And unfortunately, uh, it's the remote you're talking about. Yeah, you can only have one of the Apple remotes attached. If you want to have other things, you have to use iOS devices, probably running an updated version of the Apple remote app, or you have to use the made for iPhone, which is now in the misnomer, the made for iPhone game controllers. And recently, it looks like there was a change in policy that says you have to at least include controls for the Apple remote. You can't make a game that's, uh, that's MFI controller only. Right. Yeah. And that's led to some consternation, too, because the Apple remote doesn't have the physical capabilities of a full game uh, pad. Right. Like, there's no way to simulate a D-pad and uh, an analog stick. And a trigger button. Yeah, and all those things. And shoulder buttons, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, that's obviously going to limit... It's obviously going to limit um, uh, some of the games that can come out, but... My hope is that, because again, this causes a lot of angst on Twitter, but the best thing you can do is file a radar, write an article explaining, like if you just write an article, oh, Apple hates gamers, then that, that doesn't really get anyone's attention. It's easy to dismiss that. But write a really informed article about this is what the game you want to make, why it's awesome, and why how Apple is stopping you. And these debates go on inside, like we all hear them. They go on inside the company too. There are people fighting for both sides of this all the time. And if you have a stake in one side or another, just arm them as best you can. Yeah. I have heard though, and I I know we talked about it offline, but that you you know the the buttons on the remote are programmable you know by the app so you can use the buttons for game buttons but you're still you know you're obviously limited in some way by the fact that it's just a you've got the accelerometer so you can do like the the paddle game type stuff that they showed on stage um and you know whatever else you can do with that Wiimote style waving the thing at the screen yeah. uh and you have a touchpad um but clearly that's no substitute for a d-pad yeah i mean it's just it, it, these things are always attention whether it's going to like what do you need to control a great entertainment center and what do you need to control a great video game and i remember using my xbox media center with the xbox controller and that wasn't great i had to go and buy the hardware controller right. but that was sort of stupid for games so like you end up with these environments um I also saw some confusion. Uh, a lot of people seem confused that when you look at like the user interface guidelines, that they have the difference. They have something, things that involve a click and things that involve a tap. And um, I think it's funny. I didn't see any confusion over this until after I had had my hands on period with them. Um, I think that uh, I think that what it is is that the touchpad uh, clicks when you press it. But you can also just tap it without clicking, sort of like a MacBook trackpad. Yeah, I couldn't get a clear answer uh, about that, and I and you, there was so much going on that I, I neglected to follow up properly. But I heard both that you couldn't couldn't tap on it. Yeah, I well, I think you can tap and you can click, and the click is actual a physical click, and yeah. the tap is just like tapping. So it's effectively like the way that a MacBook can have taps that don't actually click it, and a click which is a click. So, yeah, like the magic trackpad, if you have it set up that way. Yeah, I think we're going to need more than you know, two minutes of you know hands-on area demo time with it to really figure yeah. it out. 
and the Siri stuff it was way better than I thought it because you know Siri has often been a point of concern for some people but I tried all that stuff and just the ability to say what did he say and it goes back you know 30 seconds or something and gives yeah. you the subtitles at the same time that's that is such a great feature it really is and part of it comes to the the whole like being better at scrubbing and keeping yeah. keeping more of that streamed video you know uh, alive in memory so that you can do that um, but then turning on the captions for that, it's such a great accessibility feature. And it's one of those accessibility features that is like, it just shows that accessibility is for, can be for anybody. Like you could have, you know, absolutely nothing that you, you know, perfect vision, great hearing, you know, no motor skill problems at all. But a feature like that, like if you just can't make out what a character said, uh, that's accessibility. Right, it that, is, that right. just shows how accessibility. Don't think of accessibility as being for others, for people who have some sort of disabilities or something like that. It 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 really you know it certainly is more important for people who have disabilities. Um, but to me, that's a great example of how you, accessibility is a mindset, and it really works for everybody. And it, it is amazing because one of the first things that will happen when I go to any event, and I imagine it's similar for you, is I get a bunch of people saying, please ask them if voiceover is still there because the accessibility, the accessibility community is incredibly passionate, incredibly engaged, but they always feel like they don't really make Apple any money or, or companies in general, and they'll be the first thing that gets chopped if any deadlines get right, tight. Right. So they're always, they're always really, really concerned that there's not going to be there. Well, and, and, I, and they've seen it with other products. You know. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, day one, Apple had voiceover for the Apple TV. They had voiceover for uh, 3D Touch on the iPhone, and I asked them about that, and they said, you know, that, that it's not even a point of pride for them. It's just they believe that is something that has to be done, and they have teams of people making sure it gets done. Tell me, what, I don't know anything about voiceover for 3D Touch. So right now, if you press the uh, the 3D Touch on it and you have VoiceOver enabled, it'll tell you what it is. And then when it pops up, you can flick through and it'll read out to you the different option choices, for example, on a home screen icon. And then you can choose the one that you want. And that makes it accessible to people who can't see the actual uh, 3D Touch controls. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, but that's really great. Uh, and, and, you know, the Siri responsiveness in the hands-on demo area was as as good as shown on stage i mean i was completely uncreative and just did the same thing they did i mean perhaps it wasn't a good test but i did the you know show me some james bond movies i uh, did show me episode of the talk show where maltz is a guest and got like 300 results <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good that's a pretty good one uh, but I saw other people doing other ones. You know, I forget what other ones, you know, show me action movies, only the new ones and, and stuff like that worked. And I, I you know, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to make a, a, a truly magical upgrade year over year. Siri isn't going to suddenly become Hal from 2001, <laughs> but it, it does seem like it's getting better, and it does seem like the Apple TV team in particular has somehow figured out a way to get it even better than the other platforms where series available. Well, my understanding, and I might be wrong, is that the Siri team was still doing like a lot of this work, and it was delivered to the Apple TV team. But just in general, that team, because Siri is one of those things where the first time you try it, it seems magical. But when you do have problems, you're just off, forget it, I'm not using it again. And they have to be really careful because they don't have that many shots to make it a permanent part of your workflow. But with this, um, Siri does this thing called, if people aren't familiar with it, sequential inference, where when you say something and then you say something else, it bases its answer not on the 
the thing you most recently said, but on the context of the history going back to when you first started talking to it. And they were doing that, like, you know, sh like show me James Bond movies, only show me the new ones, only show me the ones with Sean Connery, only show me the ones with, um, you know, this or this or that guest star. And, and they, they, it could keep up with the context and it could both reduce the amount of options and increase them in a way that really seemed like you were talking to somebody. And that to me was the most impressive, impressive thing, just the way it could do such fast set sorting and give you a result that was what you wanted. Yeah. Um, another thing, again, something that's not, you know, uh, go back seven seconds uh, is a feature. It never occurred to me because it just seemed too good to be true. Now that I've seen it, I can't wait to have it. Some of the features though that they have are things that we've all wanted since forever, like universal search, where if you know you want to see Caddyshack, you say, show me Caddyshack, and you have a Netflix subscription, and you maybe have HBO. Um, show me if that if Caddyshack is available for me, so I don't even have to pay anything to get it, because yeah. it's already on Netflix. And show it in one place. Don't make me go into Netflix and search there, then go to HBO, then go to iTunes. There it is. Now they've yeah. done it. This is one of those things where it really does suck to be Apple. It's almost like, um, because people have been asking for this for years and Apple wanted to do it for years and the, the media companies would not let them. They did not want to be reduced to one of many options on a TV set. And it's almost like when they gave Amazon MP, uh, DRM free music and wouldn't give it to Apple. Once in a while, you know, Apple does, Apple not only does not get what they want, but gets the opposite of what they want. And I don't know how they ended up getting this deal, but when you see it and you start asking for those things and it just works and I, you know, that the media companies can't be completely happy about that because it does reduce them to a commodity and they can't be happy about skipping around and all these things. But Apple was able to do it. Uh, and to me, that makes just a, for a much better experience. Yeah, but I think that in some ways, maybe they maybe they sold it to them on the merits of the user experience, which is, uh, and especially like if you're a Netflix subscriber, if you're not, you're not going to get those results anyway because you don't yeah. have Netflix. If you are a Netflix subscriber and you want to see a certain movie, why wouldn't you? If if I, you know, the results from Siri say, okay, you can get it from iTunes and it'll be a, a $1.99 rental or $0.99 cent rental or $3.99 rental. Or you can just hit play on Netflix. Why wouldn't you just hit play on Netflix? And I believe they're doing it with part, like not everyone has access to the search on Apple TV. I think that's still partner program based. Right. And uh, uh, it's definitely partner place, partner based. Um, and so like, for example, if and when Amazon submits an Amazon Prime video app, to the app store just because they've submitted the app yeah. the content of it won't necessarily won't just show up magically those those universal results are limited to partners um but i really can't see in the modern world where they wouldn't want to partner with that and how many other places are there where you could see it if it's the same movie or tv show you know how how likely is it be going to be because like hbo usually has like a rotation like this month yeah. these are the movies hbo has um and so, sure, uh, maybe sometime there's going to be a movie that's available on both Netflix and HBO. And so you, the person who just did the query, are going to pick one and you wouldn't pick the other. Um, but who's to say you wouldn't have searched in the one you picked first anyway, right? In which case, you still wouldn't be giving them the play. And ultimately, what Netflix really wants is you to just remain a subscriber. I mean, whether you watch you know, Smokey and the Bandit on HBO instead of watching it on Netflix doesn't cost them any money if you're still paying your monthly bill. And lastly, I think they all seem to know that the future for these services yeah. is their exclusive 
stuff. What's made HBO HBO is HBO exclusive shows like Game of Thrones and True Detective. And what's what's keeping Netflix relevant? What's keeping what's making Red Netflix more popular than ever? It's the Netflix original content. And when you search for that original content, wouldn't you why wouldn't you want it to show up? If you just ask Siri, you know, show me um you know, what's the Kevin Spacey one? With House of Cards. House of Cards. Show me House of Cards. Why wouldn't you want that to show up as just universal search wherever you are? I think the fact that they know that the stuff that's most important for you to find from them is their exclusive stuff, which you're not, yep. you can't find anywhere else. It, it changes the dynamics of, of why they would want to be involved in that. Yeah, I, the entire thing is changing. Sometimes it's frustratingly slow, but I, I think absolutely at a certain point, they're going to be exclusive data, and that's more important than being an exclusive interface. Yeah, and I think if there's anybody who maybe wouldn't want to be involved in it for a nickel and diming from a nickel and diming angle, it would be Apple in terms of if your option would be to rent it from Apple. And this is right now speaking before any sort of hypothetical streaming package yeah. that they might offer in the future. But as of today, as of when we first get our first Apple new Apple TVs later, later this year, um, if there's a movie that they have for rent, but Netflix has it or HBO has it, uh, and you're a Netflix and HBO subscriber, it's going to cost Apple money because you're not going to rent it. You're going to go watch the, the copy of it you can see for free. Well, to but, your point, though, I mean, their, their biggest deal now is the early access things where you can get, for example, Age of Ultron or something right. else weeks before any other service. And yes, yeah. it's full price, but if you want it badly enough, you can have it. Well, and ultimately, I think it just gets to the usual Apple mantra of that, that for, you know, let's just make it awesome. Let's make an yes. awesome experience and we'll worry about, you know, we'll get our money eventually but we don't have to make every single three dollars that we have you know at a time that we that we theoretically could get if people are going to be happy using netflix on apple tv good yeah they would absolutely rather you have an apple tv than you than they worry about who you're going to rent something from yeah so we still haven't even talked about the the iphones i know <laughs> um <laughs> this is such a long show with so much to cover uh iphone 6 <laughs> s yes um, I are there anything anything surprising? No, I mean I, I liked Apple's tagline because every year they get shit for you. Oh, it looks yeah. exactly the same as the last one, which is the same with the nine eleven. Every Nokia phone has looked yeah. the same for years. Every HTC phone, every Samsung. They, I mean, they, they're phones. Uh, and this year they sort of turned that around where they said nothing has changed except for everything. And I thought that was a good wink and nod to that meme. And I really liked that commercial. The way that yeah. the commercial just takes that reaction square on and even starts with it even really starts and, and with the narrator uh lake bell really isn't she's not she doesn't sound sarcastic she really sounds like she's going with the idea that there's not much that's new and then starts telling you everything that's new and ultimately i, I don't know my my take is that if anything if you if you're on a two-year up, upgrade cycle if you get a new iPhone every two years, which is totally sensible, it's a lot more sensible than the get one every buy everyone that comes out upgrade yeah. cycle that I'm on. I mean, you know, <laughs> likewise. <laughs> uh, I think it's totally sensible. I think in general you're better off on the S cycle. Yes, I think that the S upgrades are often the ones that have the more stuff. I think it was the 5S that invented touch that not invented but brought Touch ID to us. Um, yeah, 4S was Siri, 3S was the new chipset in video recording. Yeah, and some of the performance upgrades really seem most noticeable. And that goes back to the original S, the 3GS. The 3GS was a huge upgrade 
maybe uh, in hindsight, and it's hard to rate these things because it's it's largely an iterative process, and it's been so close to annual that you really we, we've been hearing these complaints ever since the three G. I mean, honestly, the first sec you know the second iPhone ever made. Well, it's now it's plastic, and all they did was add three G. Um, and every single year since then, the, some of the same people have been complaining that this is not a major upgrade. And yet here we are, you know, eight years later, and and we have this phone instead of the original iPhone, and it's it's you know it's almost incomprehensible how much better it is. I mean, every year is like that is incremental in some ways. Um, but I think in general, some of the more impressive engineering stuff comes on the S year cycles when they can work within the design constraints of the previous year. Yeah, it seems oftentimes, and I guess it depends on what department you're in, that your chief challenge in the redesign years is to get all your stuff to fit in a new design, whether it's a camera or a processor. It's thinner, it's got you know more thermal constraint, and you've got to figure all that out. And then you figure that out already, you've paid that tax, and the next year you can just start racing ahead again. Right. The, the, you know, the, I think like the six obviously was about making it bigger, and that certainly is some engineering involved. But I'd, all of the technologies were the same as the technologies that were there before. And it's the S-year model that comes with uh, 3D Touch. Yeah, and it's uh, I mean, and you always wonder what story like to me, and I think we've talked about this before. To me, what Apple is going to do is never that interesting. It's the same reason like I, I don't want to know what's going to happen in the new Star Wars movie. I want to see how well they're going to realize it. If you just look at Phantom Menace on paper, you know, you, there's this character, that character that tells you what's going to happen, but it doesn't tell you what the movie is going to be. And I, I want to see how Apple presents this stuff. Like you hear about. You know, they use Forsyth in the watch, they use it in the trackpad, they're going to use it in the phone, but how are they going to use it? And what difference is it going to make in me using the phone? That's always a super interesting part. And I, they did way better with that than I thought they were going to do. They just made a really, a really well crafted story around um, 3D touch for me. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that they've settled on this two year cycle of industrial design. And it's been other than the original iPhone, it has been, I mean, it, there's been no exceptions whatsoever, yeah. right? So there's the original iPhone, which was like a one-off. Then there was the 3G. Then the 3GS, which was exactly from the outside, you know, like the 3G, but, you know, with better internals. Then the 4, then the 4S, then the 5, then the 5S, 6, 6S. Um I, I, you know, again, you, you know, like I proved, you know, last week, you can definitely go wrong by expecting that Apple will keep doing in the future what it's done in yeah. the past. Um, but for some reason, I feel like it really works for them here and that they've got this down and that it gives the industrial design team two years to come out with what's next. And they're not scrambling every year. Uh, and I think it, it gives use, you know, it gives the, every, the ecosystem, an extra year of like case compatibility. Um, I know that there was some talk or speculation. I haven't even looked at the specs. I, I honestly don't even know, but that, that, that the, the, the six X's are slightly like in terms of tenths of a millimeter, uh, thicker or something. But I asked and they are case compatible. Like any case that was certified for your iPhone six yeah. should fit on a six S. Uh, it's like a super cheap case with no manufacturing tolerances at all. Uh, but that, re yeah, so there might be exceptions, but I think the ones, I think like, uh, I don't know, I, uh, to my knowledge, if there are exceptions, it would have to be something that is, you know, some kind of totally rigid 
thing. I don't know. I yeah, honestly, no, they're compatible. It, within tolerance levels, they're completely compatible. Um, and that's such a big deal for some of the things that, like, ecosystem-wise are such a big advantage of being an iPhone user. Like, when you go to Disney World, and if you want to buy a, you, you want to buy a case from Disney for your iPhone, um, the fact that they're all the ones they already have are going to fit the phone. Like if you buy a new phone, you know, now in September, you can just go there and, and all those cases that are in stores already work. It's a huge advantage. Yeah. And the manufacturer will tell you exactly the same thing that they don't have to cut new cases every year. And also they don't have to try and cover nine or 10 different designs from the same company every year. Right. Yeah, I totally think so. And, and, you know, and for example, so like for the, the engineering team working on 3d touch and who knows how many years they've been working on this, you know, a probably, lot, apparently probably a lot. But they, you know, as soon as the hardware design for the 6 and 6S was set, uh, a whole bunch of the constraints that they would have to know to worry about were set. Yeah. And, you know, yes, they made a change and they switched from whatever series aluminum to 7,000 series aluminum. Um, and I'm sure there were all sorts of little things along the way where they got, you know, monkey wrenches thrown in the works. But at a basic level, they knew the sizes of the devices that they would be working with. They knew the sizes of the displays. And I, you know, I, and that's not like they knew that last year. That's like they knew that two years ago yes. because the design of the six and six, uh, six plus was set two years ago, a year in advance. Um, you know, somewhere within Apple, there's a team that knows exactly what the iPhone seven is going to look like next year. Yeah. If not further ahead. Yeah. It might've been set, might've been set months ago. Um, because that's how far in advance some of this stuff has to go. Um, it's, you know, but I can only assume that that's, you know, the schedule that they're on. But I don't think there's any advantage. I just think it, it, it as the years go on, it, I've always thought this, but I think as the years go on, you look more and more superficial if you really are going to judge whether the iPhone is an improvement year over year just by whether the exterior design looks new. Yeah, I want to tweet that every year and just make a general reminder to people that, you know, we know who are reviewing these things that, you know, human beings aren't buying them every year. For a lot of people, they're upgrading from a 4S, a 5, a 5C, a 5S, and it's a it's a substantial upgrade. And the really the really funny thing is that Apple can do all this and people will say, oh, it's boring. It's not a big upgrade. And then they'll make it like gold or rose gold. And suddenly yeah. they're flying off the shelves because it turns out you scratch our surface and what you find more surface. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, before we move on... Um what did you think of the new rose gold uh, anodized aluminum? That's what I ordered. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I try to get the new color because it, I, I photograph these things a lot, and it, it it's a very monotonous page when everything is the same color. So I always try to get whatever new is available because it livens things up. But I was interested. I wasn't sure if it was going to be because usually rose gold is much co more coppery than this, and this is really much more rose than it is gold. Hmm. Uh, and yeah. the watch matches, and it, it I mean, it's... It's different. It's a very different uh, direction for Apple. That was one of the things I was interested in. Is I know that the the watch started them with the seven thousand series aluminum, um, and now the phone is on it. And talking to them, and it's one of those questions where they're not going to quite give you a complete answer, but you know, like a wink, wink, nudge, judge answer. Is it the same aluminum? And it's like, yeah, it's the same aluminum. Um, it's you know, and and it's the same metallurgy teams working hand in hand, and and. So looking at it, I was looking at the watch, the, the rose gold watch at the event last week. And it's under the, like I said, this really nice lighting, like really nice. I mean, you just cannot believe it's not sunlight lighting, yeah. like nice and diffuse and seemingly a very, very, you know, neutral color. Um, 
and the guy from Apple at the desk I was with was like, well, would you, you know, what do you have a question? I was like, I'm just curious how well it matches the the phone, you know, the rose gold phone, but the phones were at another table and you can't just walk around with these things. And he goes, oh, you want to see it? And like they had, they were ready for that. And they you know, he had a little key and he could unlock a drawer right there. And even at the watch table, he could take out a rose gold phone and, and put it side by side for me. And I, I mean, I got really close. I got as close as I could. And I mean, those things are identical. I mean, it's far beyond the capabilities of my vision to notice any difference in the color. Yeah, I got a photo. I asked them if they could hold it up for me. And I got a photo of them together and they were... It's hard to see from the picture, but they were so yeah. so very similar. But and there's a almost a running joke that the the uh, space grays have not always matched. Like they've changed right. over the years because black is the hardest color to anodize, and if you try to make it really black, it chips and it flakes. So you go down to gray, and then maybe you get a little bit better at it. And like with the watch, they can make it darker again. Does that hold up on a phone? So that's that's always a moving target. But I, my understanding is gold is the easiest color, and some of these variations are much easier to just nail time after time. Yeah. Um. And I, when I was in the, I mean, this is the worst type of evidence. It's an anecdote of one, but, um, I, what, what happened was, I think it was, was it yesterday or Monday? Well, one of the last two days I was walking, uh, my son home from school and I know he's really interested in the, the product red strap, sports strap. Um, and so I said, well, let's, you know, let's swing by the Apple store on the way home. It's a beautiful day. Let's walk by and go in and look. And we went and looked and, you know, not for sale yet, but they were there on demonstration. And while we were there, a guy came in and uh, he wanted to see the rose gold watch. Um, yeah. And it, you know, so anecdote of one, they, the new colors seem popular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's just it because we do respond. We we respond to some form of individualization. When everybody has the same color watch, you start to feel like if you get something different, it's it's just a little bit more your own. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, again, I don't. I think it's interesting that it's I. I I think that the silver, silver back and white face watch, and I think you know, is is truly. I think all of them are. But my point is, I think they're all relatively gender neutral colors. I think that the rose gold is going to skew a little bit more towards women, and I think space black probably and watch phone all devices probably skews a little bit more towards men. But even at those extremes, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's that far from fifty fifty. You know, and if you talk to any, like I've talked to all the manufacturers over the years, and they will always tell you that black is by far the biggest seller because, it, as cliched as it sounds, it is the little black shirt, the little black dress. It's the one thing right. that you get that goes with everything, and people just tend to go that way because right. not, you want to dress it up or you want to do something else or you don't want people to notice it. And the flashy colors, they get a lot of attention, but they're never high sellers. Yeah, I think... Um I think that maybe if there's if there's a sport band that maybe skews specifically towards women, it's the rose gold with the I think they're calling it lavender. Yeah, they have is, several. Is is probably you know pretty feminine, but I guess the way I would put it is even the ones that skew a little feminine don't skew girly. None of them look you know what I mean like in terms of linguistics that there's a difference to me between what's feminine and what's girly, and the stuff doesn't look girly; it looks feminine. No, the entire product line, like it's not childish in any way. The, right. the blue, everything from the blue, like nothing is boyish either. Everything is sort of, it's not like a, it's not a, a gold gold uh, right. phone. It's not a hot pink phone. Everything has sort of this layer of, uh, not conservatism, not where, but just a restraint on it. Yeah. Um, let me think what else. I guess the only other thing I can think of right off the top of my head to cover with the iPhone 6 and 6S and 6S Plus would be the live pictures feature. 
that and I was really impressed with the camera. That was a big question to me. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I guess they're semi related. It's um you know, there were a lot of arguments last weekend at XOXO um <laughs> about whether live pictures are are a new thing or whether they're they're just videos. They're just they're, really I mean, short phones videos. have been doing like uh, I just have this ongoing joke that Nokia invented everything in eighteen twelve because you know, there have been live pictures on Windows Phone and there have been live pictures on HTC phones before. But whoever inventing it first is like who's being first in a comment section on the internet first first is right. who makes it successful that really matters. Right. It reminds me of the uh, the photos in the Daily Prophet in the yes. Harry Potter world. It's it, you know. I don't know. They're still. But those photos. were visually impressive when you saw the movies. Oh, definitely. Uh, they're also visually impressive at Universal Studios when you look at the when you go through the rides down there. And I don't know what you heard, but I, when I was talking to Apple, they were very careful not to call them videos, but to say that these are still photos being taken in quick succession and then animated. Like they didn't want to make it sound like they were just doing a quick video. It wasn't some wasn't even so much that they wouldn't say that they're videos. Is that if you called them videos, they would they would yes. say no, they're not videos. These are live photos, and you know. Videos are videos, and these are live photos. These are 12 megapixels. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I think the camera is impressive too, but that's the sort of thing that's really hard to tell w from their demos, and, and you certainly can't take any pictures in the hands-on area that, that prove anything. No, but the interesting thing to me was that when you generally, a, a lot of times when you take a camera and you add megapixels, a, a lazy company will just cut up the sensor into smaller and smaller bits. And then you get less and less light in right. those pixels and you get shittier pictures. They just, they, they are noisy and there's not a lot of fine grained detail. And yes, you can still crop them and digitally zoom them, but you're dealing with bad data. And Apple went to a lot of, like they did not, the iPhone camera has always been about making really, really smart compromises on aperture and sensor size and all these things. And I, I was happy they kept doing it. They didn't just capitulate and say we'll make it we'll put an 18 megapixel or a 30 megapixel lens on here yeah. they made they went to 12 but they did you know and phil Schilder kind of made fun of himself but they did do the deep trench isolation which yeah. you know, if only the death star had we empire still be in business <laughs> but that's a good joke but they they did that so that you don't get the color bleeding you don't get the noise and it yeah. makes for really like the sample pictures and they said they were genuine and they're always very honest about that those sample pictures in low not just low light but when you had a light source in the middle or on the sides in an otherwise low light setting they look spectacular yeah and it really does seem like the color balancing that they're doing is really the tone that they're getting off the sensor is is extraordinary so I'm super, you know, always super excited about it. And it's if there's any way that I can justify, uh, in a logical sense, my buy a new iPhone every year, it's the ever increasing quality of the camera, and the ever increasing proportion of the photos I take every year that I take with my iPhone. Like yeah. buying a new iPhone every year is, you know, is going to make the pictures I take on my family in the year 2016 uh, better than they would be if I didn't. And, and that's you know. what I like. It's that goal. Like their goal is not to do a bunch of crazy stuff. Their goal is that you take the phone from your pocket and you snap something that's important to you. And the the better chance you have of getting a great shot is the be is what they're going to focus on. Their their ambitions in photography are are boundless. There yeah. there is no limit to it. There is no good for uh, good for a phone sort of mindset. Their their goal and you know in in their mind, I think internally. They still feel like the the camera in the iPhone 6s and 6s Plus is shitty. Like their mm. their goals are so far ahead for where they want to get to, and I feel like that's that's sort of 
doggedness is what you need to get the sort of iterative improvements that we're getting every year. They I'm consider themselves a camera company. Oh, absolutely. Schiller said it on stage with me at the show. I said one. I said one of you know you know do you do you consider yourselves one of the leading camera companies in the world? And he said the leading camera company. You know, yeah. I mean, he was. I think it was and the it, only time in the whole interview where he sort of bragged a little bit. And they're like the chips. They will spend boundless amounts of money because they don't make money on the camera. They make it on the entire iPhone, and that affords them the luxury of deeply investing in these technologies. Yeah, it's really really interesting. Um, Anything else on the phone? I don't want to. I want to. I want to get to iOS nine. So I'd rather we can talk. Yeah, I no, it's got like interesting phone. wireless and stuff. But yeah, yeah, we can talk about that detail later. Um, I want to do one more sponsor, and I want to talk to you about iOS nine. Um, and our last sponsor, another one of our good friends, by which I mean a returning sponsor, um, is our friends at Casper. You guys know Casper. Casper sells obsessively engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices. Just the right sink. Just the right bounce. That's their slogan. So how are they made? They have two, like two technologies for modern mattresses, latex foam and memory foam, and they put them together for a better night, better night's sleep. Uh, memory foam in particular, that's the one that you kind of sink into and it forms a shape. Uh, they, it's not just pure memory foam because pure memory foam really bothers a lot of people. You really kind of sink into it. A lot of people think it's hot because you just sort of end up like almost submerged in the thing. Uh, and the fact that you get up and it doesn't just return to form. So they, they mix memory foam technology with latex foam. And they, it's just one thing. And so you don't. that's one of the things I really like about this, too, with Casper. Is really all you do with Casper is you pick what size mattress you want. And then they just send you the one with their, their just the right sink, just the right bounce mixture of foam. So you don't, like, pick, all right, I want a queen-size bed. And then you got to pick between, like, small, medium, large, squishiness or something like that. Um uh, which a I th- would bother me in any case, and b would be, uh, how in the world would you do that online? So they just do it right. They've spent tons of time. This, I mean, the whole company is really built around the 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 foam that they make these mattresses out of, and they're the experts. They know more than I do about foam, and you know what you think feels better in like a two minute test in a store where you're laying on a mattress that a lot of other people have laid on, which is really gross. Uh, but what you think in two minutes on a mattress has nothing to do with what you think, what's actually going to be good for you for like years of sleeping, uh, eight or nine hours, or if you're me, 10 or 11 hours a night. Um, they just do it right. Now buying a mattress online, crazy, right? Cause how, how are you going to buy a mattress if you've never even like jumped on it or, or, or squished on it? Here's the thing. It's risk free. Right, you just you buy this thing. You send them. They send it to you. You get to sleep on it for up to a hundred days, and it's with free delivery. And after it, up to a hundred days, if you don't like it, if you think it's not a good mattress, you don't think it was worth the money, painless free return. Just send it back to them. Uh, the mattresses are made in America, and it, the prices are just unbelievable. I think most mattresses, top-notch mattresses with good technology, they're all over a thousand dollars, maybe two thousand dollars. Here's their prices: five hundred bucks for a twin size mattress, nine fifty for a king size mattress, and the other sizes are, you know, right where you would think in between five hundred and nine fifty. Compare that to the industry averages. Go out there. I dare you to find a better deal. It's an outstanding price point. Uh, they make this happen by just getting rid of the middle people. There are no by by just selling them to you direct. They make them. They sell them to you. Uh, it it gets rid of all the middlemen. There's no markup in between. Really, really great price points. I keep hearing from people. This is one of the sponsors of the show that gets the most responses from people like on Twitter and stuff like that that say, 
I, I've been, it sounds crazy to buy a mattress online, but I did it. I trust Gruber. Uh, wow. This mattress was great. And it was the easiest mattress I've ever bought because man, buying a mattress, the old fashioned way, it's a pain in the ass. Um, here's the URL. Go to casper.com slash the talk show. Go to casper.com slash the talk show. That's the, the promo code. And not only, uh, will they know you came from the show, but you'll save 50 bucks towards any mattress. So those prices I quoted, uh, it, nine, you're, you'll save 50 bucks. You'll get a king-size mattress for 900 bucks. So go there, use the code, the talk show. And if you need a mattress, keep them in mind. All right, iOS 9. Man, we really left a lot of time for this. <laughs> Luckily, here's the thing. The reason I w- wanted you on this week, I've read your review. You were nice enough to give me advance access to it. Um, really, really comprehensive. Uh, I, it, again, just like the phone itself, you can say, looking at iOS 9, wow, this doesn't look that like that big a deal year over year. You, I read your review and really dig into everything that's new, and it almost seems, it, it, it just seems like it's, too much year over year like not too much like it's overwhelming the user but too much i can't believe apple pulled off all of this yeah i mean i thought i was in for an easy year because like the rumor was they punted a lot of stuff till the future and even if that's the case uh there i i just kept writing and it wasn't that i wanted to write this much about it i would have much preferred to you know go to vegas or something but this it there was just so much in it and it was so much stuff that wasn't really apparent because when they gave the list that tentpole list like new notes app new news app uh, smarter Siri, but when you start digging into it, I mean, they didn't even put content blockers up on stage. That was no. all in the sessions. There was so much just incredibly interesting technology and things that really make the experience. It seems like they're really focused on performance, but not just how fast the processor goes, but how fast you can move around the system and how enjoyable that experience is. This is that's the most common question I've been getting today from people is, and I, I, it's, it makes sense. It's because everybody out there who hasn't. Been running the beta over summer which is smart now has the option of upgrading and they already have a phone and their phone is working okay pretty good and their worry i think and it makes sense the biggest worry people have is they're going to upgrade to ios 9 and it's going to feel slow yeah i i ran it all summer long and not not since wwdc like you but i upgraded to nine on my daily carry iphone 6 at some point in july so it was about a month after it came out and never once regretted it. Um, I found so that, you know, again, your mileage may vary out there. I found that it was as fast or faster. There was never a point where I thought I saw animation stuttering that didn't stutter before. Um, it, it felt pretty good. And in fact, I would have to say that for betas, especially for ones that I was running since July, I found the whole OS to be remarkably stable. The one thing that I always point out to people is that when you first download and you first install a new version of iOS, there's so much that's going on internally. It's you know updating libraries, it's migrating data, it's re-indexing all the Spotlight stuff, especially this year with all the new Spotlight things, that it is going to be operating as fast as it can for a while. And it's going to be using, like, the it, radios are going to be on and the processor is going to be on. And it may not be the best experience, but give it that day, give it that data update and then yeah. sort of make up your mind. Yeah, like just because the, it's let you restart and log in and go through the you know the little welcome you know thing that you go through when you do a major update doesn't mean that it's done with everything. Yeah, yeah. Did you find that? Do you find it to be as fast or faster? I find it to be better, and I, I did some tests with one of the betas on an iPhone 4s, and it, it was very good. I don't. I I want to do it on the release version. I haven't had a chance yet because that to me is the really honest test, and let you install it, let it wait a day, and then try everything on it. But Apple seemed especially laser focused after last year to make 
the the ability to install and run iOS even better. So they're shedding a lot of things that don't need to be on older devices. They're even shedding features when you know people would like every feature, but some of them don't make sense on lower powered, lower processor powered devices. And they're doing all that. They're, they thin down the OS to one gigabyte. They're doing all the app thinning stuff. Uh, they are they really want because they have relatives. I think you've said this. They have relatives who are running these devices, and they want that to be a great experience. Yeah. And they want people to update to another iPhone. They don't have to get pissed off and go to another phone. So it really behooves them to get all this right. Yeah, I think one of the things that I think most annoys people in in Apple, from Tim Cook, I think, down, but especially to the people who work on this stuff, is that really annoys them that there's there's this widespread belief that Apple purposefully makes a new version of iOS, make your old film slow, old phone feel slow so that you'll upgrade to a new phone right away. People Google iPhone slow at peak velocity because every single iPhone in the world is updated on the same day right. where every Android phone is it, updated on other days. So they Google that over an entire year right. and it doesn't peak. It, it, and, and that's not to say that it hasn't happened. That's not to say that there haven't been iOS updates that have performed disappointingly on older yes. hardware. And, and especially if you're maybe two years behind and... There's the, hey, isn't Apple, the one angle is, isn't it great that Apple supports so many years back of iPhone models as opposed to Android where, you know, this year's new version of Android, you know, it often, it's only is, you know, available on phones going back one year. But the flip side of that is that there have been some releases where the lowest supported phone especially performs worse than that. Um, and, you know, it, it it is what it is, and whether that's a mistake or not, or strategically on Apple's part, but the people you know who hear it, they're they're nothing but disappointed in themselves for it. Yeah, they really are, and they and they really do. Their interest is not in selling, or their primary interest is not in selling this year's new phone right now to as many people as possible. Their interest is in making as many people as possible happy and satisfied i iPhone customers, so that their next phone, whenever they buy it, will be an iPhone. And that Absolutely. one way that the easiest way they could burn through that is by making people think things like, hey, Apple um, is just trying to screw you with the iOS updates, you know, and make your phone feel slow. Yeah, when I heard they were going to support everything that iOS 8 supported, I felt that they were probably pretty confident that they've got this under control. Yeah, I think so. I have heard, and I, I don't, maybe they even announced this. I don't even know if that, I don't know why they would. But I, going back to WWDC, I had heard that they were doing a lot more, um, you know, have engineers actually carry older phones for some period of time during development or for whatever they're working on. And so that it's not just like, oh, go install it on an iPhone 5 and run a few tests and see if it's all right. But, you know, have, yeah. you know, do some serious dog fooding on older iPhones themselves just to sort of keep themselves honest. No better motivator in the world. I don't know if that's true, though, because, I mean, how do you find the volunteers to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, what is going on? This isn't it's something, even having read your review, I'm not 100% sure on. So with the new Notes app, the new Notes app is a major, major update. Uh, it really does, like you say, like you previously used Apple's built-in Notes as sort of a, uh, and it's exactly how I've used it for a long time, as a multi-device, multi-platform clipboard where for a couple of pieces of text or URLs or something like that, something where even like handoff isn't quite what you want because you want to do it later or something. Yes. Um, just put something here. And then I know from there, 
you know, whether I'm on my phone or whether I'm on my Mac, I can put something there. And then later when I'm on something else, I can go and I know where it is and I can get it. And then I can, usually I just delete them, you know, it's little temporary things. Um, and that notes now the built-in notes app is now a serious notes app and it's got, um, you know, a lot more pages like features with, um, uh, titles and headings and stuff like that and styles and, and built-in checklists and, um, a lot more features related to image attachments, and you can do doodles in them now too. Yeah, uh, and they even and that's pressure sensitive on a success, which is really nice. It's crazy. Um, yeah, uh, but I don't I don't see that yet, and I think it's because I haven't hit the upgrade button. Is that right? Yeah. Is that that's the that's the thing you have to do to get those new features, and and the 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 hitch with the upgrade button is it's sort of like you're going from the old notes to the new notes. And yeah. when, you, when you go to the new notes, the the biggest thing is that syncing only takes place through iCloud Drive, and it's no longer doing that hack that used based on IMAP folders. Yes. Um, but the hitch is once you've done it, you've kind of got to you know you got to get everything on the latest and greatest. And the thing I've been putting off and probably will put off for a while is upgrading my Macs to El Capitan. Yeah, it's because they still don't really, and I don't want them to release everything on the same day. But every right. year now, we're having this thing where where half of something is ready on iOS in September, and then you have to wait till October to have the other half of it. Like I think it was iCloud Drive uh, last yeah. year, and it was something else the year before. Yeah. So if anybody out there is 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 confused, I, I thought I had the story, but I just wanted to make sure with you. But if anybody's out there is confused why they can't put doodles in their notes even after they upgrade to iOS nine. It's it's because you're like me and you didn't do this upgrade, which they're very clear about. They, once you upgrade this, then the syncing you'll need you'll need your Max on El Capitan to do the syncing. And yeah. you know, if you're not the old system's just not capable of of syncing all the data types that are in the new Notes app. Yeah, I don't blame them. I I don't. I in fact, it makes it makes more. I'd be more worried if they let it if they tried to do yeah. it. You know, I really would because the whole IMAP syncing thing that Notes did was a clever workaround, but it's a terrible, terrible hack. Like using IMAP as the syncing back for uh, uh, notes is is just a terrible hack yeah no it's, yeah and this this is a nice clean modern not just a nice clean modern notes app but a nice clean modern architecture for it yeah um, so I'm really looking forward to that but um, I wanted to see it what about Apple news do you use it I have used it a little bit. Apple News is one of those things where it's not, it's only officially supported in the US right now. It's supposed to be in the UK and Australia, oh. but there was an article saying it's being delayed in the UK. Uh, and that, and so I had to flip my, my iPhone to the US in order to get it. And now I'm getting directions in miles, whatever the hell those are. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it it's, and as people weren't putting content in yet because it wasn't really uh, switched on, but it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge interesting thing for me because is it really worth the while of Wired and Vanity Fair and all these articles to make content specific for Apple News and to sell ads? And yes, you can funnel in your old ads, but you can also sell iAds specifically for it. And this goes into the whole content blocker discussion, but a lot of companies just don't want to have to deal with that complexity. They want one place to go to sell ads and one place to go to buy ads. And they want one type of content that they can you know spit out a PDF or a ping and put it everywhere. So it, I, I just want to see what sort of reward Apple gives people like whether it's going to be huge volumes of eyeballs that makes them want to put in the effort to support all of this i find i've tried to get into it and it just never sticks and there's nothing i can put my finger on that's wrong with it and sometimes i've you know i've found plenty of you know 
in articles that I've enjoyed. But I never find my I, I always the only reason I ever go to it is because I think I want to get to know this. Um, you know, this is new. It seems yeah. important to me. I mean, it seems important on a couple levels as a user, but it also seems important to me as the guy who runs during Fireball. I got to understand this. But the only reason I ever launch it, and I've been like I said, I've been running the iOS since since July. I only go there when I force myself to go there. It just isn't for me. I don't find it compelling, but I don't know. See, I, it's one of those things that this is an app in particular where I really want to get to know it, but it, it really, like, what do I do? What does John Gruber do? In some sense, I'm like a professional news junkie. Like, yes. what I do is, like, my my career is being an obsessive news junkie who reads and reads and reads. And so maybe it's no surprise that this isn't for me. This is meant for people who aren't news junkies so they don't have to be a news junkie to stay up to date. Well, it's a weird experience too because it does run off of RSS, but you know a lot of a lot of uh, people don't give full RSS feeds. So then you start reading a paragraph, yeah. and you have to tap a button, and you go into a web view. And I don't even think it's Safari View Controller. And then you can't like you can go to I can go to Daring Fireball, but if I've heard that John did a great article on something, I can't search to find it. I have to swipe to find it. Then if I go to the topic that you wrote about, I can't find that publication. So it, it it's not really. It's not really suited to someone who's used to net newswire or, or a reader or something like that. It really is meant. It is way better in many ways than uh, the news uh, stand app because not everything is a completely different user experience every time you launch it. But it feels like one of those things where it might take it, it, in a year from now we'll see if it's either really really good or it's just not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it's nothing like newsstand because newsstand was at the root level nothing but literally i mean it was a great name for it newsstand was well named i don't think it was a great idea but it was well named because it's just like going to a newsstand you just see a bunch of covers for publications and if anything you learned less from newsstand because at least when you look at a real newsstand you may be able to read the headlines on the covers uh and you have to pick something and you go off and everything remains in its own silo like with apple news stuff is intermingled and you'll get like a thing from the new york times and a thing from sports illustrated and whatever but um it just isn't for me, and I didn't really expect it to be. But it, you know, I'm just curious to see once it rolls out how many people really take to it. Yeah, and also it's like they've had they've been doing things with the servers in the back end for a long time. And ideally, it's going to be like Apple Music, where you go to For You, it wants to learn about your preferences and present you with a bunch of interesting stuff you may not have found yet. But how well that hits and misses will determine a great deal of what the value is to you. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so interesting. I love the way that you include in your links in your review your links to all your previous reviews and you have the icons the icon logos that apple has used for each os release and the ones for seven eight nine are just sort of the same except that yes it's just seven eight nine you know you know um i wonder i actually didn't even think to notice because the nines look similar but i bet they switched the nine to san francisco from helvetica noia but they're all the same and whereas the ones for two three four five six are all like all over the place yeah they and sort I, of reflect whatever the skeuomorphic tendency was at the time yeah i think it really epitomizes what i mentioned to you you know a while back on this episode that it it just shows that the design of ios 7 is really started starting with ios 7 really matured yeah. um anything else i guess the only thing i can think of that's really i really want to hit hit your thinking on because you know just item by item item by item i'm just going to send people to your just go read renee's review um the show's gone on long enough but what about the the deep linking 
That to me, so, uh, you know, mutual friend Marco Armand, he has an app called Overcast, and I was just playing around with it, and I had an episode um, of Daring Fireball or ATP or something, and I said, remind me of this. And it said, okay, I'll remind you of this, and put the little Overcast icon in. And then I went and listened to a bunch of other shows, and then I went back to Reminders and tapped on it, and it took me back to the episode I wanted to be reminded of. So I pinged Marco, and I said, did you set this up? And he said, no. And I started looking into it, and it turns out that because he'd enabled continuity, continuity does the activity indexing, uh, that that's exactly what they were using and they were using that for the back button and they were using that not in a creepy way so basically anytime you leave an app it just drops a bookmark and then it'll take you right back to there anytime you leave a reminder it just drops a bookmark to where you were and takes you right back to there and this is a technology that they created for uh, continuity and there's another continuity technology that let you move from your website to an app back and forth and they use that essentially for universal links so if I get a Twitter article in messages I can tap on it and instead of going to mobile.twitter.com like an animal I go to the Twitter app uh, and if that Twitter app's not installed, it doesn't care. It's a universal link. It goes back to the mobile Twitter site. And all of these things just work seamlessly. That's, I think that's what they're calling it, seamless linking, based on existing technology. So, you know, really, like if Marco had to do extra work to support it, it wouldn't bother me that much. But, you know, he's got enough to do already. And he got all of that for free, essentially. And to me, that's one of the, the really awesome aspects of iOS 9 is how it took all this stuff and gave us tremendous new features for almost no effort. Yeah, and I also think it it it's at no additional cognitive load on the user. If yeah. you figure it out and you get the hang of it, you you you're moving around faster. But if you don't, if you just ignore it, you you're not you're not bothered by anything new. There's nothing new to do. I I I almost worry that some of the the richness of this is just going to go uh unnoticed because it's so it's so not in your face, but like, I would have never even thought that like, that's something that's new to me that you can just go to Siri and what, so you're listening to a show and then you jump to Siri and say, remind me of this later. It's not just a show. Like if you send me a text message or right. I get an email and you just say, remind me of this and it'll put the icon for right. that app into reminders and deep link to the spot in the app that you were in when you made that, that request. Yeah, I can just imagine right now how many listeners of this podcast are right now in in Overcast listening to us say this, and they're trying it right now, saying "remind me of this later," and they're making a reminder of this of me and you talking about this right now. Because yeah, it's, it's great, and you can say things like "remind me of this," like "remind me to listen to this when I get in the car," and if you plug into a car kit, it knows that you're plugged into a car, and it'll. It's just very clever. The thing that's really hit me is because uh, uh, the the back buttons that go in the top left like when you jump to a web link from something and then safari has a back to wherever you're from like back to mail yeah. um it looked clever and i thought this was the as soon as i saw it at wwdc i thought that what i'm about to say was the case but in a summer of using it it is the case where for years one of my you know pet peeves have been the hardware or system level back buttons on Android yeah. and Windows Phone. And and to me, it's the single biggest mistake that Windows Phone made because Android was already out and the designers of Windows Phone, which I think is a really well-designed system, uh, overall really should have seen the inherent problems of that button. Um, and again, like everything, it's trade-offs. There are times when you just want a go back to where I was bef right before this, even if it's a different app. Um, you've done, you've opened a link, you're in a browser window. Now you want to go back to where you were. Um, and that's the counter argument from the Android people as to why this, you know, is supposedly a good design. Um, 
But among the many problems that I've had every time I've ever used an Android phone, no matter how long how long I've given with it, is that for every time that it works and takes you back where you want to go, there's all there, another time where it takes you somewhere where you didn't want to go. Um, yeah, they conflate inter and intra app navigation. Exactly, and leads to a lot of collisions. That's exactly it. Intra and inter app uh, navigation. And it's just, and it's never labeled. It's just a back button. Whereas in iOS, it's extremely clear. It tells you exactly where you'll be going back, and it only it is only up there for when it remains uh, uh, contextually useful. So, yeah. like if you switch from Mail to Safari, it's up there, and then if you just stick around in Safari, making new tabs and stuff, it goes away. Yeah, it's great. And the Safari View Controller doesn't have a back button. And I was, you can't just swipe backwards, but then there's collisions about swiping back inside the View Controller and through the app. So I understand why that's like that. But you can just see, so almost, you don't have to do the double click anymore and then try to hunt for your app or go to the home screen and try to hunt back where you're going to. You you can just go to an app, go right back. And the iPhone is a single column. It's not like the iPad where, for example, you can just tap a bunch of messages in the list view and see the details change quickly. You had to tap, go to another message, tap, go to another message, tap messages, go out. And they've done all this stuff from the backlink and the deep linking to the 3D touch to make navigating a single column interface just almost accelerated. Yeah. I I think, you know, if there's anything that surprised me and how much it's affected, just not affected, like it's like revolutionized my use of, of the iPhone. Um, or iOS in general, because all of this applies to the iPad as well. But um, it's it's that stuff. Yeah, it's, I I just I can't live without it. And I went back to using an iOS eight point four device when Apple Music was coming out. I kept trying to hit it, and it wasn't there. And it really was a blockage on my enjoyment yeah. of the device. Um, anything else you want to say before before we truly wrap it up? I mean, I'm I'm out. I mean, I could talk to you for another three hours about iOS nine, but. Um, but we've got to go. I like the multitasking. I, I really like that the multitasking. I mean, it, it's mm. limited on other devices, but they did give the slide over. So even if you're on an older iPad, you can use that. But just the ability to have multiple apps there and, and to start, you don't necessarily need it all the time, but when you do need it, if you're watching something and tweets are coming in, or if you're trying to refer, write notes while you're referring to a web page, it's, it's another way where it just enables you to do more without continuously carouseling out to a different app. And that to me, is a tremendous time saver. Yeah, and I think the thing you have to get used to is, and it comes, it'll come to you if you don't even think about it. But what you have to get used to is if you see two things on screen at once, the one on the left is primary and the one on the right yeah. is secondary. Even if you're fifty-fifty, even if like on the uh, iPad you've gone to fifty-fifty, if you command tab, the command tab is switching um, the primary. And the secondary yeah. is still secondary. And you just remember it. Just remember that primary is on the left, secondary is on the right. And you can switch them if you want. Um, and it it all just sort of makes sense as the thing on the left is exactly what you're used to in iOS since forever. And the thing on the right is a new thing you're able to do, which is you're allowed to have a secondary thing open on the right. And it's... Yeah. You know, if if anybody out there is concerned that this is adding, I mean, it's obviously is adding complexity, um, but it's not adding to me confusion. And you don't have to. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, there's people who just don't know that notification center or uh, control center are there. They have a wonderful experience without any of that stuff. But if you do need more, it's almost like depth of design. Uh, you, people who are just nominally interested, they get the, the first layer and they're happy. But if you want to put in the effort and dig deeper, you have greater levels of functionality. I think that's a really good way of staging design. Yeah. It's amazing how much that they've gotten out of side swipes over the years. Yes. You know? 
from, and I don't think there was anything. I think in the original iPhone, there was nothing that you got from any of the sides because there was no, no control center, so no control center, no navigate, no, uh, 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 notification center. Um, and now it's, you know, it, it, but it's, if you've discovered either of those things, the, the way that you saw it slide in from the side to open up a second app is, is very natural. Yeah, and, they're, and it's the same thing with 3D Touch. They're using it consistently, and consistency is a user-facing feature because if you can't predict and rely on it, you stop trying. But if it's there when you when you just you don't even think about using it, it just becomes natural, then it becomes part of your workflow. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm really curious about as iOS 9 rolls out into the real world is as I you know do my I go into a coffee shop and see what devices people are using. And, you know, I, it, I'm keen to keep and airports is another place where i always do it but yeah keen, keen to see whether this becomes something like when you're going back to your seat from the restroom on an airplane and you're just looking at what devices people are using how many people are using split screen uh uh ipads yeah and with keyboards and pencils yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, Renee, Richie, thank you for your time. Uh, people can get more Renee. Number one, you can go to imore.com right now and find uh, his comprehensive iOS 9 review. Uh, on Twitter, you are Renee Richie. Yes. Uh, and your podcasts. What are all your podcasts? I always forget. I do Debug with uh, Guy English, where we talk to developers about developer stuff. Uh, we do Vector with Georgia and Guy and uh, Dave Wiskus, which is more about how humanity affects technology. And I do Iterate with Seth and Mark uh, Edwards about uh, design. Well, there we go. A talented podcaster, prolific. Slow down a little bit, all right? I'm trying. I am. Um, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the good work and thanks for your time.